and I'm like laying on the court by myself in this, the Nielsen Tennis Center in the middle of Madison, Wisconsin. It's dark outside, I'm sobbing, my wrist is in pain. Imagine throwing a party for your friends on a cruise ship and Richard Branson shows up to speak. Then imagine Bill Clinton shows up as well and Jeff Bezos. That's the true story of my friend, Elliot Biznow. He's a founder of a company called Summit Series. And get this, he got a bunch of these thought leaders to come together, including people like Tim Ferriss, Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, and put in money to buy a ski resort on top of a mountain in Utah and build homes there to create an entrepreneurial community. You're gonna hear his story today on Greatest Stories Never Told. I am here with the magic man, Elliot Biznow. So stoked to have you here today, man. Your lifestyle just like blows me away. Uh, you live the brand every single day. I mean, what you have done in your short time on this earth is extraordinary. You are the founder of Summit Series. You do events with people like Jeff Bezos showing up and speak on your stages. I've seen you interview Eric Schmidt, Kobe Bryant. You own a uh, little ski resort that's actually the largest in the United States and are building a community with some of the most fascinating folks in our lifetime. We're here on Powder Mountain right now. We're here right in now. our cabin on Powder Mountain. Right now. If I lean out this window, I can see Tim Ferriss's house behind us. If I look a little further, throw a rock, Reed Hastings, CEO of Netflix. Uh, Richard Branson has got a plot of land around here he's going to build out. You've set this life up so all these people are, are coming and, and being your neighbors. It wasn't that long ago that you were just a nice little college kid trying to play tennis and uh, do your best in school. What the hell happened since then, man? So after getting rejected from all seven schools that I applied to for college, like any person, I was trying to make my way in the world. And I got into the University of Wisconsin and I'm from Washington, D.C. So that was the middle of nowhere. And I got a partial scholarship for tennis, not even a full scholarship. And I I've been training for tennis. Like my dream was to be a, a tennis pro. Did you want to go to Wisconsin? Like, or that was like your backup? I'm so positive that when I first realized I was going, I was just, what is this place? No. But as soon as I got there, I mean, the reality is it doesn't matter what school you go to because all colleges are amazing, right? At the end of the day, you go from living with your parents in your same bedroom, your fridge is full of food, like everything's taken care of you to on your own. So, so it doesn't true. matter if you're at any yeah. state school, any community school, at the end of the day, you're on your own. No more curfew, no more for it, chores. For an ambitious 18-year-old, yeah. that's a dream. Okay. So whatever I thought, I showed up to Madison, Wisconsin, and I was fired up. Okay. And, you know, I had my big tennis ambitions and they were not panning out. In fact, my tennis was a bit of a disaster freshman, sophomore year, but I committed that junior year, I was going to go to a new level. And I actually went to the coach and I got him to set me up with a ball machine. So like, like how big were you trying to go? Like, were you seeing yourself as a pro tennis player? Were you thinking that you were going all the way? All the yes. Way? Cause I was delusional. Okay. Which you're going to find out. Okay. Well, I'm seeing though that like all you've done now, you know, like I can't imagine you thinking anything less than total, tennis total player, delusion. So. Like, okay. uh, you know, I could be at the farthest court thinking one day I'm going to win Wimbledon. And I convinced the coach, said, let me coach, let me use the ball machine. Let me start practicing on my own. And he got, he got me this ball machine. And I committed to getting to the tennis facility at 6 a.m. to hit for an hour and a half against this ball machine. So it's the first time at the beginning of my junior year of college that I'm hit on the ball machine. I go out there by myself. It's Madison, Wisconsin. It's still dark outside. I turn the machine on and I start, you know, hitting these balls. 
and I'm so fired up. I finish the balls, they all go to the other side. I'm so fired up that rather than walk across around the net, I run and jump over the net. And I catch my foot on the net and I shatter my left wrist. And I'm like laying on the court by myself in this, the Nielsen Tennis Center in the middle of Madison, Wisconsin. It's dark outside, I'm sobbing, my wrist is in pain. Did you know it was broken? I couldn't move my fingers for oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. And I'm just by myself and I get up and I'm just tears everywhere. And I, the balls are still all over. And I have like this racket and this gimpy hand and I'm trying to like shove balls under the racket to like put them in the ball machine. And oh, I collect damn. all the balls and I walk off like gimpy hand, my rackets, I have my bags and I'm just, I'm toast. And a few weeks after that, my girlfriend totally unrelated broke up with me. And a few weeks after that, I was walking to class and every day you go to this big state school, thousands of kids walk to the 8 a.m. class. And so I was walking to class and it was something that I loved because you would feel it's like going to a football game. You'd feel the energy of all the people, these thousands of people walking to class. And there I was walking. And for some reason that day I turned around and I looked behind me and I saw this sea of faces. And this, I was overcome with this feeling that all these people were walking the same direction. And here I was with my broken wrist, my girlfriend broke up with me, walking the same direction as everyone else. And I was really angry. I was resentful. There was Everything no- was going wrong yeah, There was no positivity. And I just like in that moment, I just said, fuck this. I'm not walking the same direction with all these people anymore. All that matters if I'm gonna stand out in the world is being different. I'm gonna take my broken gimpy wrist. I'm gonna take my solo self and I'm gonna turn around. And I turned around and I walked looking into all the faces of these kids. I said, they'll go their way and I'm, I hope they do whatever they do. I'm going the other way and I, I'm gonna stand out. And I just thought- You actually physically then turn around. I physically turned around okay. and, I, and I just felt, you know, they're all gonna be applying to the same jobs, trying to go to the same companies. And we're not even a top 25 or 50 college. I'm not mm -hmm. walking the same direction with a bunch of people at Stanford. I'm in one of seven University of Wisconsin schools. You know, I've learned some great stuff here and I've loved it here, but if I'm gonna stand out, I need to be different and that is gonna start right now and I'm walking the other way and I'm dropping out of college. Wow, so where'd you walk to? I walked back to my dorm Okay. and I called my parents and I said, mom, so I think- Wait, 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 let's rewind a little bit. You not only decided to turn your ass around and walk, but you're like, Fuck this, I'm out. You decided to drop out of college completely? There's a lot of factors coming. So I had okay. started a business with my dad okay. while I was playing tennis. Okay. College is the best place to start a business because you, ha you really have this dorm and you're set up. And if it doesn't work, you can stay in college. But I started this yeah. business with my Cheap dad. Cheap labor all around. Yeah, we didn't have any labor. It was just me and my dad. Okay. It was an email news newsletter business, oh, okay. like a business insider for commercial real estate. He did all the writing. I did all the ad sales. Oh, and okay. So, I imagine you like in the dorms with like everyone else in the dorms, like working on your evil schemes and stuff. You know, one time I went to the library, the Helen C. White library with my girlfriend before exams, and everyone was just studying so hard. And I brought uh, the Wall Street Journal. Because someone had told me, man, if you just read the Wall Street Journal, that's how you get an education. And it was like, you could hear every time I turned the paper, the crinkling of the paper. And at one point, my girlfriend said, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you studying? I am studying. <laughs> I'm preparing for my Statement. future. Yeah. So there was a lot of naivete at the time, right? It wasn't... Uh, 
I wasn't present. I wasn't super grounded. I wasn't doing things from a place of love. It was just like, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to do something different. I want to be a pro tennis player. And the tennis came crashing down. The wrist was broken. And I called my mom after I turned around and, and ever the salesman, I said, mom, I think it would make a lot of sense if I took just one semester off of college to focus on the business that dad and I started and then see where it goes from there. And was that kind of like to make your parents not worry that you're dropping all the way out? Like, were you already mentally 100% out of college at that point? Mentally out, but I also knew that people like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, they never dropped, they did not drop out of college. That is a myth. They all took a semester off because you can uh, go back. And maybe I did think at the time there's a 10% chance I'll go back. I mean, it's not a, yeah. a, it's a fine option to go back to school and the schools will let you back. And you didn't know any of those guys at the time. Like now I know you have I knew these guys zero on like people. FaceTime speed dial. I knew zero people. Okay. When, we, when I started with my business with my dad, I had zero connections. We had zero revenue. We had zero employees. We had zero readers. We had zero advertisers. Everything was a zero. Like the email newsletter that we were sending out about commercial real estate in Washington, D.C. That was our little niche. And it turned out the niches are, the riches are in the niches, which is a great saying. Right. But right. that's not going to get something that like has uh, Bill Clinton show up speaking at your Yeah, we were just commercial this, real estate. this little like, thing. You started I, off with something very niche. Down. In my dorm room. And I was there in school and I was cold calling and and, you, tr- and you, you just, did you have a passion for commercial real estate or this was just su- something you and your dad saw an area? So when I started, my only money. passion was I want to be an entrepreneur okay. and I want to do it myself because I had this other experience on the tennis team. When I went for my visit at Wisconsin, I was a senior in high school and I met the seniors in college and they were the almighty. They were amazing. And when I went back to college freshman year, they were now in the real world. And I said, how's it going? When I, they said, do not go there. They'd ah. all gained weight. They were miserable. Their f- energy was depressed. And they said, you got to avoid the real world at all costs. And so that really came into me. And I said, I'm, if I, I got to start my own thing. I mean, that was all mm. a lot of co- convalescing ideas. But one of them was, I cannot go into the world and go work for someone who's going to tell me what to do. If I want to have fun and enjoy my life, I need to decide here's what I want to do and then I'm going to need to build it because there's never going to be a job you find that's perfect to what you want. And in fact, most are going to be the opposite. You're going to compete against millions of people for these jobs and you're going to get put in a, a spot where you, you just take the job you can get. So I think it's interesting because you know now looking at what you've built, which I don't think it would be possible for anyone to imagine, back then you weren't like thinking about this, you were just thinking one step at a time, like what's the first step to get me off of this rat race path and onto the path of doing your own thing and calling your own shots, sounds like. Yeah, I mean, the first business that I built after the company with my dad, which was Summit, I mean, the whole idea was what is the perfect business that we're going to love doing that we can go traveling and we can kind of do it from the road. So we'd read the four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss. And, you know, it's basically- He's now your neighbor, lives like- yeah, it was basically, cabin two yeah, it was, it was yeah. you know, escape, you know, the nine to five, build your dream, travel, adventure, make money in US dollars, live in a place where you have a much better exchange rate. Mm-hmm. And so our idea was, what could we start that we just loved to do? And we thought, man, you know, it would be really fun to 
put on events. I mean, the event is once a year for three days. You only need to get there a couple days early and you can kind of plan the event from anywhere, sell tickets from anywhere. And I had done a couple of events before the original summit events. Like basically I dropped out of college. I didn't know anyone. And I thought I got to meet some people. So it wasn't a business when you, the first early summit things were not for business. It was for, it was correct. And And you were doing the real estate newsletter for business. Yes. And it was like all the startups. I mean, Facebook started just for fun and Google started just as a little search engine, just for fun. I mean, I think Facebook started so Zuck could meet women. That's whatever his, it definitely wasn't as a business. Okay. So whatever yeah, his yeah, reasons yeah. were, yeah. Summit started because I didn't know anybody. And I moved back in after I dropped out from college. I moved back into my childhood bedroom, back into my parents' house, and I didn't know anybody. So you dropped all the way out then at that point? Well, the semester off. Oh, the semester off. So Got on it. the semester okay. off, I'm home, and then there's another semester off. Okay. So you're back at your parents' house. You're on your semester off, and you're thinking probably... Knowing you, you, you got to get something going before the next semester comes. So you don't have to go back. Well, we're building this business and we're growing the business with my, with my dad. But I just thought I really need some help because I was like an island with no other peers. So I just had a lot of questions. I didn't know any of the business fundamentals. I mean, there is a value to going to business school and there is a value yeah. to getting a job at a company as a you know operations director and learning how operations works or a finance director, a sales manager. But you didn't know that at the time. I didn't do any of that. So when you do take that entrepreneurial path and you skip all those steps, you need to make up for it really quickly. And my idea was I'm going to cold call people that I've read about and I'm going to invite them to go on a ski trip because who doesn't like skiing in the winter? And I'm going to pay for it because I have this idea. I'll get them all to say yes. It'll be so world-changing, this gathering of 20 people that I'll get some sponsors to cover the costs. Ah, and these were people that you wanted to learn from yes. to help your business yes. of selling newsletters. Yes, and the, uh, exactly. And so the original trip uh, was 20 people, was, uh, and I cold called Blake from Tom's Shoes. I'd read a little snippet in Ink Magazine about Tom's when I was in college. I'd ordered a pair, and I literally cold called him, and I got through to his assistant at the time, Jake Strom, who turned out to be his first employee, and now one of my yeah. best friends, but Jake. Same here. Love Jake. That's connected amazing. me to Blake, and Blake came on the first trip, and I cold called um, Ricky Van Veen and Josh Abramson, who started College Humor and Vimeo and Busted Tees. And in fact, my pitch was so crazy when Ricky Van Veen answered the phone that they had a prank that they would do where they would, if someone was crazy enough, they would tell the person that they sound, that they were amazing. And they'd say, you got to call my co-founder because he'll love this. Oh, just to get the co-founder. So he gave me his co-founder's cell phone number. I pitched him and he actually did think it was amazing. And they both came. And then Sam Altman came, who was like, he ended up running Y Combinator. Wait, 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 pause for a second. I know it's been a while, but I want to hear this pitch. I think I was way less polished than now. And so probably my voice was a lot higher and I was really excited. And I think what was so great is I hit them with so much enthusiasm Mm. and just so much momentum. So what was it? Come on a ski trip with me or, you know. I'm Elliot. I'm from Washington, D.C. I'm I'm an entrepreneur too. My, My dad and I have a newsletter. And, and, and I'm trying to meet other entrepreneurs and I'm doing a ski trip with 20 entrepreneurs. Like, uh, what, what do you think about getting together? It'll be like Ted, but for, for 20 of us who are uh, in our twenties. Oh, so all people in twenty. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It was called the under 30 CEO summit. Ah, okay. And you know, because the, the key, one of the things I always tell people, everyone's trying to meet their heroes. Yeah. Do not 
try to meet Richard Branson or Barack Obama, they're never going to spend time with you or any of us. Call your peers because they'll actually help you and they'll talk to you and they'll actually be your friend. The only relationships that are worth it in the world are people that you can connect with, talk on the phone with, and give real feedback with. Any other relationships will prove, in my experience, to be fruitless. That's really interesting. So like going off track a little bit, but I think it was 2011 when you had uh, Bill Clinton and Branson appear at your events. And at that point, did you stay contact with them? Like, were they you buddies or did it take like to like we a did. few more years? Because now you're kind of like at, at a playing at a level that these guys are playing. Well, on. all those relationships started from people who worked for them who were our age, mm. because oh, all these people have okay. AIDS. And remember, we were just trying to connect with those people so they could be speakers at events. We didn't have illusions of grandeur that you know they might become our best friends. We had an event, we wanted to have the best speakers and the best musicians. And so you know, after that first summit, you know, we, we got everyone together. The, these people actually said yes because they weren't famous at the time. And they were on their 20s and they probably thought it sounded interesting to meet others. They never got down. invited to these famous conferences. Yeah. They'd never been to Coachella. You know, they were just, you know, starting their little businesses and they basically all said yes. I love this. This is something that anyone could do really at some level. Like, you know, maybe it's not the top business leaders of your generation, but, you know, if you're a real estate agent getting into practice, you could call all the other top real estate agents like in the other cities in your state. Be like, hey, I'm doing a symposium for real estate agents in their 20s or something. Get everyone together. I mean, the best example of this is just our total focus on who the president is of the United States and our total disproportional focus on our local representation, our state legislations, our mm. governors, our city mayors, our congresspeople, our senators. It's just the, 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 the disproportion is astounding. So people are trying to tweet at Donald Trump and thinking he might actually read one, but really you could meet with your local representative and they'd probably have a... Like I mean, it's just the equivalent of how we should spend our time. I mean, we should spend our time building our peer groups. The biggest waste of time is trying to meet famous people. And people reach out to me and say, Elliot, will you be my mentor? And, you know, my general thought is I'm the wrong person. You want to find some, you want to build your crew. You want to build, it doesn't, they don't have, the mo they should not be well-known. It should be people who will invest time with you that will come over every night. Our crew, when we were starting Summit, we lived together for years and years. And every night was a creative brainstorm and dreams, dreamscaping and coming up with ideas and eating dinners together. And when we built the Summit community and these original events, these people were coming as real peers and friends because they're at the beginnings of their careers. So that's how it started with a ski trip that, so how'd you pay for that? Did you have little- So I actually did like... get sponsors. I put the beginning oh, on really? credit cards. My mom helped book the house. Okay. Um, and it was, it was in Utah, funny enough. And uh, she helped book the house. We got the people. And then I called a real estate firm called Jones Lang LaSalle. That was a brokerage. And I told, uh, it was a, a person I'd become friends with named Steve from Washington, D.C. And I, 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 told, I told Steve Berman, I said, do you want to come on this trip? And you guys could sponsor it and you could meet real estate clients. Uh, and he really believed in me at that very beginning. And I, there was a venture capital firm. And there's a guy named Scott who I'd become friends with in D.C., not well known at the time. I said, what if you sponsored the trip for, you know, 10 grand and you could come meet companies to invest in? 
And he said, yes. And so I raised most of the money. I think I fell, you know, about $10,000 short. Um, I told everyone I'd fly them first class. That's how well, nervous. You pay for their flights too? And I did. And I, the total wow. budget was like 35,000 and okay. I got, you know, almost, you know, 25,000 or so of sponsors. Oh, amazing. And then, so it was kind of chicken egg scenario too, right? Because you had to get the people to say yes first yes. before the sponsors would say yes. Total chicken but and you egg. you got them committed because you just had faith in your game plan to get it done. Totally. And there was a right. very first person I called and he said, if you get other people, I'll come. Uh, and then- Was that Blake? That was Joel. And so when I called other people, I said, well, I have someone already coming. And if you guys come, that'll be four. And they're like, all right, well, if he comes and you come- and you get four other people will come. And I remember hearing about this like a year later because you were doing another one in Mexico, I think. Yeah, so it was every six months we would do an event. We did that okay. one, we did one in Mexico with 60 people. And okay. um, this time you had a little bit more, were you able to get sponsors in advance? And Kind of, we, we were so desperate for money that we sold the name of the event to Staples. And we named the event the Staples Young Leaders Summit. And so oh, we literally got okay. rid of the summit name and we just like sold the brand to Staples. Well, that's a popular thing. You know, some guys built a stadium in downtown LA and sold it to Staples as well. I was that's also trying to get so. sponsors okay. and I was really working it hard back in the day. And I, I was trying to use my tennis to meet people. And I heard that there was a pro-am tennis tournament in the Hamptons, which is like this wealthy place in upstate New York that I'd never been to that I'd always heard about. And it was $4,000 to go to this pro-am tennis tournament. Basically, you could pay and buy a ticket to chop it up and play tennis with other successful people, of which I wasn't. But I thought, man, this is like 20 connections and they could come to Summit or they could ah. buy advertising. So, And then a successful person going was flying in his own plane there. And he said, you know, if you're coming, I'll give you a ride. So I thought, and I said, yeah, of course I'm coming. Then you get to connect with him on the So I, I yeah. bought a $4,000 ticket. It was absurd amount of money for me to spend. At least it all went to a charity. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, if I go out there, I can, I'm so good. I'm a good tennis player. I could probably backpack around and move around. And so I got to the Hamptons. I played the tournament. Everyone said, oh, where are you staying after? And I said, you know, and they said, oh, you should stay with me. And I ended up staying with the owners of the Yankees in their house. What? Another person let me, their Aston Martin to drive around. And in this networking, I met someone at Goldman Sachs. And back in college, and I was trying to figure out what to do, I'd even tried to get an internship at Goldman Sachs and they denied me. And I said to this person, I'm building this summit event. We, we're really struggling with sponsors. I'll give Goldman Sachs a free sponsorship and you can come for free and another person if you let me put your logo on the event. Because you knew if you had Goldman, you could call other sponsors. So right? that was also kind of how we got Staples because uh, I said, hey, this thing, everyone wants to sponsor it. I've got, I'm doing deals with Goldman Sachs. So <laughs> unless you're ready to play ball at the top level, this isn't for you. Oh man. And so I was just connecting all these dots, you know, taking his, my savings and going to this event and meeting these people. And, and you know, I'm 20 two years old, college dropout, don't belong there at all. And I'm just totally, you know, working whatever I can. That was Mexico. And then Aspen was where we met because actually it wasn't quite a cold call that you did with me. I was referred to you, but I remember that enthusiasm on the phone. I remember talking to you. And I also remember you saying something like, you got to decide the next 24 hours because these spots are filling up, you know, <laughs> like, or something yeah. like that. It was like, and then I called a couple of the people that had gone on the Mexico trip and I was like, hey, is this guy Elliot for real? Because it was a shit ton of money for me at the time to go to Aspen. And I remember 
Eben Pagan, my mentor who went to Mexico, he's like, you know, I haven't really made up my mind about this Elliot guy yet, but just go. You'll be glad you went. There's something there and you should just go. And I did. And I still keep in touch with so many people from that trip. It was like one of the best. Yeah. And it was life. almost that third event was almost a disaster because what would happen is we didn't sell tickets for the first two events, but we really wanted to build a community in order to build a community or to build any business. You need revenue. It's one thing to give away a hundred pairs of your new sneakers to build momentum, but you don't have a sneaker business if people don't buy your sneakers and you don't have a business if people don't buy tickets to your event. And so we realized, Hey, we need to charge a couple thousand dollars for people to come for the Aspen event. And we were picking sexy locales like Mexico and Aspen. We thought that'll really get people to hear this, you know, a town like that, but we needed to sell tickets and we just weren't that thoughtful back then. And so rather than call everyone and say, Hey, from the last event, here's the dilemma we're in. Here's why we need to sell tickets. We want to walk you through the situation. We just sent an email blast. Mm. Hey, we're now charging. And it was a oh, disaster. Were free. And someone ah. leaked it to Gawker. And that was my first time ever appearing in Gawker. And it was, you know, ski bum idiot fest, you know, Aspen 2009, 10 years ago. No. It was 10 years ago. While you were trying to sell tickets? Yeah. And we were oh, the shit. cover of Gawker. And you know, Gawker was the thing then. It was literally like ski bum idiot fest, you know, destined for failure. We were devastated. We were devastated. And and in fact, we one of our co-founders, he said, you know, this we should just end summit, right? We should just end summit right now. You know, we could all move back to Washington, DC. Like I've always wanted to he literally said the line, I've always wanted to get a puppy. <laughs> He's like, you know, and maybe maybe I should, we should abandon our pirate ship. And, you know, we'll get a puppy, we'll move back to DC, and there's a lot of opportunity with our relationship. Did you think about throwing in the towel there, too? It was a disaster, man. Nobody was signing up. I mean, we were like 60 days away. Really couldn't have been worse. And my mom called me one night and she said, you know, I'm at uh, an Oscar. I'm at, I'm at an event. It was, um, she lived, we're from Washington, DC, for the Oscars. Okay. Um, it was just at a neighbor's house. It wasn't a fancy okay. event or anything. But um, Yossi Sergant was there, who created the Hope Campaign with Shepard Ferry for President Obama. She's like, I think you should meet this Yossi guy. And so I, I literally was in Washington, D.C. at the time. I drove over, um, and I met Yossi, and, he told, and we connected. And he told me he had this vision, because Obama had just gotten elected, that they wanted to bring young entrepreneurs to the White House. And so he stayed in touch. And a few days later, he called me and said, hey, we want to do the event this Friday. And it was Sunday night. So it was five days away. We want 35 game-changing young entrepreneurs to come to the White House. And you, you believed him? Well, I guess he had just done the Yeah, no, he Obama. was working he in the White legit. House. Yeah, oh, he was wow. in the Office of Public Engagement. And it was the real deal. So then, but you were trying to do this Aspen thing. We were trying to do the Aspen thing, but my summit right. co-founders and I, we decided, you know, what if using this White House leverage, it like gives us cachet? Because right now we're just a bunch of bums trying to sell tickets. Everyone thinks we're a joke, but we'll do this White House thing. We'll be with Obama and everyone will realize like Summit's the real deal. Mm. So we say, you know, we're going to pause the tickets for five days and we're going to focus on this event in Washington, D.C. And, you know, and the people didn't have to pay. It was just come to Washington, D.C. To, to meet with the administration. They wanted the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, the people putting together the stimulus package, the people from the National Economic Council. And so 
you know, literally, they even gave us a list of people they wanted. And one of uh, the people were the founders of Method Cleaning Products. And we didn't know these people. And so Brett, my co-founder at Summit, he literally cold called the founders of Method. And when their assistant answered, he said, hi, this is Brett Levy calling on behalf of the president of the United States, Barack Obama. I need to speak to the founders of Method. The assistant said, well, what are you calling about? He said, there's an event this Friday. And the assistant said, well, I'm sorry, sir. They have a paid speaking engagement they've had on the books for 18 months. And Brett just took the longest power pause of his entire life. And he said, ma'am, when the White House calls, you answer. And they canceled the speaking gig and they flew in. And, you know, even Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner came to the event. And... um Tony Shea came from Zappos and Jessica Jackley came who started Kiva and we and, and um, Chris Saka came and it was, I mean, these people were also at the beginning of their careers and they wanted this experience and we were in a room. I mean, literally the 35 of us, you could feel the energy. Uh, the founder and CEO of Twitter, Evan Williams came and we were that day of the White House event. We were on the cover of the Drudge Report. Like entrepreneurs storm White House. Oh, wow. and so, so you're on one gossip website, like they're trashing you. And then the other one is like building you up as the, the biggest, the what is this thing? thing? And then we literally took the momentum from all those people. Some of them came and spoke at the event and, you know, others bought tickets. And we literally, now we're calling people and we're like, hey, we're doing this event in Aspen. Yes, Craig, we're very busy. We just came from the White House. And we were able to use that unrelated momentum to build up the thing that we wanted everyone to come to. Wow. And you know what I think is really cool is it might look like you got this like chance lottery ticket from the White House, but no, it's because you had busted your ass to get those connections and pulled off the first two trips already, you know, because you wouldn't have gotten that opportunity as... Yeah, we pulled off the trips. Like out of the blue. I, when my mom said, there's Yossi's here, I, I ran over, then I was deal-making with yeah. Yossi. When he said, do you want to do it? We, we all said yes. And I think that, you know, just an interesting thing to think about for brands is you could have a brand that, let's say, is floundering along like Adidas. And then they sign, they're doing all this work for basketball and all their sports, but then they sign Kanye West and he blows up Adidas again and makes it cool. And then now what the basketball players are wearing, suddenly their Adidas is a lot cooler. Mm. And so sometimes the way to make something relevant or build it up isn't to keep pushing and pushing and pushing on basketball. It's to bring in Kanye West. And that was the experience for us. It wasn't just keep calling more people about Aspen. It was, let's just pause that for a second. Let's build up the Summit brand because it's going to be hard yeah. building it up, hucking tickets for sale. Let's build up the brand again. Let's align ourselves with these game-changing people and with the, you know, the new president of the United States. Build up the Summit brand. You know, we had all the pamphlets and the, yeah. the material White House logo that we put on, Summit logo. We thought, where should we put them? What should be bigger or smaller? They're going to be equal. <laughs> They're going to be next to each other. And we're going to you know, give everyone the pamphlets with the summit symbol and the White House symbol. We're going to tell everyone coming to Aspen all about the White House event. And so suddenly you go back to them and the summit brand was elevated immensely. So you know what I really love about this? There's this like whole thing going on right now in our culture 
that says like, you know, something's not working. You need to work twice as hard and you need to give up Saturday nights and, you know, bust your ass 18 hours a day. And looking back on what you've done, you know, you've had an amazing life along the way. Like, yeah, you busted your ass, but like, you know, you have built what you built like, and it wasn't like a sacrifice. It wasn't like, you know, sweatshop hours. And when faced with two of these situations, the first one where you were in college and, you know, a lot of people would have been like, well, I got to try harder and I got to get the best grades and get to the top of my class. You were like, nah, I got to zig when everyone else is zagging. And then same with the summit, you know, you could have been like, well, I got to need to bring in extra sales reps and like call these guys more and more. You're like, nah, I got to go a different direction and figure something out. Like, I think that's a big lesson there that if something isn't working for you, if you're having trouble breaking through, don't give up, but like consider that the path that you're going down might not be the most efficient path. You know, maybe you should look at it from a different perspective. And you did that in both these examples and those created big breakthroughs. Yeah, we had similar experiences all throughout the last 10 years. I mean, one of them was after we we were doing these land-based events, we thought this just isn't it anymore because there were a lot more events coming, more conferences, more festivals. And we had this idea, what if we chartered a cruise ship and did a summit at sea? And I remember the first person I told the idea to, they said, that is a horrible idea. I would never set foot on a cruise ship. Okay, so but at this time, you got the summit brand and you're doing successful land events that are selling easier than the Aspen one, I imagine, when she had the White House. Yes, but like any event, it can play out. Definitely, yeah. So you decided, hey, let's let's zig again. You went for a boat? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why people update the the gear and the merchandise they sell every season or every year or, you know, have to come out with new products. And we thought we're just... We're getting too lumped in to all these land-based events. We need to do something that screams for attention because mm-hmm. the most scary thing is not being heard. Mm-hmm. It's not doing something. It's not doing something wrong. It's just that people don't hear you. And so we had this idea: we are going to charter a cruise ship. And so we literally cold called and reached out to these cruise companies. And because we had no credit, we had you know we didn't have you know good banking relationships. This is in 2011. Um, we had to pay the entire deposit up front. You got to rent a boat. You got to rent a boat. Basically, but like a cruise ship. And it was a million dollars. Oh, damn. And so we had to take all of our savings, all of the company's savings. I mean, literally everything we had, we had to sign the contract. And then we had to, you know, and then the payment was, you know, sign the contract on a Friday. And, you know, you know, tell them we're sending a check that arrives on a Tuesday and start selling tickets on Friday. So the check is for a million dollars. Yeah. And you know, you had to like, so not only did you have to like go all in on that, then you had to know that you had to sell a million dollars worth of tickets and sponsorships to. Yeah. And more than that, because that was just the cost of the ship. We also now had a a team of say, you know, 12 full-time people. Mm. So we had to pay for the team for the year. I mean, all in, it was a few million dollars. And people were telling you, oh, I don't want to go to a conference on a boat. But I mean, we thought we have to do this. We have to do something. We have to do something different. And we literally signed the contract and we made the deposit. um, And we thought, you know what? At the worst case scenario, we're all going cruising. Like we're going to go <laughs> on the cruise. Expensive cruise. The cruise yeah. will happen. A quarter million bucks each. And, yeah. you know, Hopefully they have an all-you-can-eat buffet. They do. And we came up with the name Summit at Sea. 
And nice. we ended up doing three of those over the years. But yeah, that first summit at sea, I mean, when you do a live event, it's like the Super Bowl. It's like, you know, at 7 p.m., the TV's on, the curtain opens, and the entire season, the playoffs, the teams, the fans, the TV, it is happening at 7 p.m. And that's, that is what a live event is like. You know, the first, the, the ship is pulling out of port at 4 p.m., which is what we told everyone. We actually pulled out of port at 11 p.m. because there were stragglers. But you say, this ship is pulling out of port. The first act is going on at this time. And it actually, you just say, wow, we're starting right now. And we have, you know, eight months to sell this thing out. And it created just the full team going at it as hard as they could. So how did it sell? So the thing about events is that all events sell better at the end. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that if you have to sell 100 tickets and you have 10 months to sell, let's just say, that would be 10 tickets a month, just hypothetically. So what happens is that even if you sold evenly, by the time you you're like seven months in, you have 70 tickets, if each person just makes you half an introduction, meaning for every two people coming, they make you one intro, you're sold out. But at the beginning, you don't have any people coming to make you introductions. And so how did it sell? Like all events, you're just grinding and grinding and grinding for the beginning, but pretty soon you hit this tipping point. And now uh, the first summit at sea was 1,400 people. people coming, and 1, now we have seven, 800 people coming. Mm. And you only need an introduction from a couple of them, like every other person. Yeah. And it's sold out. And then people find out their friends are going and they're like, oh, I got to go on. This so you sell the same amount of mass. tickets the last 30 days as the first eight months. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Critical mass. And then also all the speakers, their first question is, well, who else is speaking? It's like, that's not helpful. Ah, I need you to commit ahead of time. So. People are still talking about this first summit at Sea Cruise that I regrettably did not buy a ticket. I was offered to go and I was like, oh, I don't think I can afford it right now. This and that. But like people are still talking about it. You guys had Branson on that boat. Who else was on that boat? Because I'm still hearing stories of like some of the deals that were made on that boat in 2011, right? Yeah. So the idea was going to summit at sea on a cruise is cool. Going and summit at sea with Richard Branson speaking, that's pretty rad. What if the roots were the house band? And, you know, what if Peter Thiel spoke and Beth Comstock, who is the CMO of GE? And, you know, we worked at the University of Miami to do shark tagging to, you know, where people were literally tagging shark, yeah. sharks and learning about ocean conservation that way. What if you start packaging all these things together? That's real marketing. That's a real product. And so... Very hard to do that. Of course, it's easier said than done. But, you know, the chips start to fall when you stack the pieces together. And so we did start to put all those people together. And even to the point where the last day, Pitbull asked to come because it was leaving Miami. And Pitbull literally came on the boat and took the microphone from the roots the opening night with no rehearsal. Like they spotted him in the audience. And he came onto the stage and was just, you know, doing whatever his songs are that he's doing. And, and he has such a critical mass that he asked you guys to come by that. Yes, and this would always be the story for all of our events was that it was extremely difficult at the beginning of each event. But as you would get these critical masses, suddenly you have Peter Thiel speaking and Beth Comstock and Richard Branson, and suddenly people want to know, can I speak? 
or the people you have asked to now they'll come back around and they'll really, really want to speak and they'll really want to attend. And so the legwork is the first 80% and it tips in the back quarter. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you've never paid speakers. We have only paid two speakers in history. Wow. Are you at liberty to share who they are? We paid two speakers. So one of them, and it was both charitable donations. Oh, okay. And the reason we paid them is because, so one of them was the Richard Branson at the first summit at sea. And the reason was that he and his team said that they wanted to speak, but they wouldn't be able to confirm until the very end. And I don't blame him because he gets speaking offers all the time. And he's got a family, he's got a yeah. hundred companies. And he probably gets offered. And if, so, and if he's going to do something for free, man, maybe what if a month before he gets offered something huge or has some big business thing, but they said, look, if you are willing to speak a pay, we'll lock it in. And so we had to make this decision. He's, he said he wants to do it. I, he'll probably do it. We've had big speakers before. Um, Mark Cuban had spoken and Sean Parker. I mean, we knew he would speak, but we said, you know what? If we just pay and it's a charitable donation and we really love Virgin Unite, then we could lock them in six months early. Uh, and that and really- you have that and so, person to tell everyone. And so we decided the trade-off was worth it. And by getting him six months early, suddenly all these other people wanted to speak and attend. And remember, at the end of the day, you as an attendee, you're looking for value. And so no one really cares who you pay or don't pay. I don't care how much Coachella paid my favorite acts. I just want to see them. Right, right. So no one really cares. It's just like, are you going to deliver a show? That's all I care about. And, you know, we have our budget, and that includes paying for the ship, paying for our team, paying for production. And, you know, we can move the numbers around. Hey, in terms of, you know, we can spend less on this, more on this, less on this, more on this. And we decided, let's really shift the budget and spend money to lock in someone of that caliber six months early. Game changer. Wow. And so who are some of the attendees? Because that's what <laughs> I hear about is all these deals that were happening on these uh, conversations there and investments that were made that turned into billion dollar companies. I mean, I would say over the years, the best examples of attendees are people that at the time were not well known. That's what I mean. Yeah. Famous. And yeah, I mean, a great example would be all of the Uber founders, you know, Travis Kalanick, Garrett Camp, Ryan Graves, and a bunch of the other early folks all on the first summit at sea. And yeah, just in the crowd, coming the entire time, um, the Warby Parker founders coming to all of these events. And, you know, Uber would at, at our 2013 summit base camp a few years later, they raised their Series B at that event and literally- At the event. At, I mean, well, at other places too, but at okay. the event, they were roaming the hallways, you know, ask, you know literally asking, for connections and money and raising money from people at their $280 million round valuation series B, raising money at the event oh my for God. Uber. You know, uh, uh, Eben told me when he went to the Mexico event, he was uh, in a car from the airport with a guy named Garrett and they hung out and had a great conversation. Didn't talk about any sort of business, but you know, had a, had a great hang. And then Eben went back and did his thing. Garrett went back and did his thing. Uh, turns out Garrett is Garrett Camp, and that summit trip was about 2009 when Uber was starting. And Evan's like, man, if I had just asked him what he was up to in business, maybe he would have said, hey, I'm doing this car service thing. Would you like to be an angel investor? You know, but uh, yeah, a lot yes. of people yeah. that came to those early events. I mean, Chris Saka hadn't started Lowercase Capital yet, which is the most successful venture fund in history, and he raised money from a bunch of people he met 
on those first few events. And I had wow. asked people, because I'm always curious, what's the best deal you've ever done? And a bunch of people said, you know, I met Chris Saka at Summit and invested in his fund. And of all the things I did in my life, that has, you know, allowed me to buy a family house or, you know, yeah. that was the most successful event. So, I mean, the moral is, you know, no one has basically ever told me, I met this super famous person and did a deal with them. It's I met someone at the beginning of their career, I built a relationship with them, I got to know them, and then when they had their new thing, they reached out to me. So true, it's like, I it's like that concept you talk about, the power of your peers. People are always trying to meet Obama or Trump or whoever, but if you focus on meeting your peers, you're gonna meet those people when they're at the start, and you're gonna be along for the ride, contributing value to them, and then when it's you know, time to reciprocate, comes around. Yeah, I mean, we're here in Utah right now, and I think Utah gets you know the third or fourth most venture capital of any place now in America. Really? And you know, you, you know, they even call it the Silicon Slopes. And it just goes to show in every city, in every town, there's amazing entrepreneurs, there's amazing nonprofits. And you know, everyone starts by themselves, every single company or nonprofit or organization. And here we are in Utah, and there's people, I'm sure, that have built their networks here in Utah on the ground. And now there's all these billion-dollar companies, amazing education companies, mm. companies doing like all this great work in the world. And people have built those relationships over the years. But it doesn't work to just show up at the end and hop on uh, you know, the bandwagon. So interesting. I met a guy last night, uh, Carter Comstock. He's the founder of a company called Freshly. They're delivering 1 million fresh meals a week right now. And they started the company in his hometown of Tucson. They just started doing food delivery in Tucson. And then later he moved to Manhattan to get in the mix with like all the, you know, VC community. But, you know, if you were his friend back in Tucson, he was probably asking you to write a check. And I don't know what their current valuation is, but, uh, you know, I think it has a big B in front of it. So, yeah, I mean, there's a reason, there's a reason why Major League Baseball has, you know, single, double and triple A and a farm system because you build up players because it's really just a game of chance of who's going to sign the five most famous athletes you know, in any sport. And so you actually, there's a reason agents are meeting people right out of college because you have to build these long-term relationships. And so whether it's sports or whether it's business or whether it's, you know, you want to build an amazing nonprofit and you need all the connections, uh, you, you have to build them from the beginning. Man, so such a wild ride you've had up to this point. And, and we haven't even touched on Powder Mountain yet, but I know there's some other wild things that have happened along the way that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, particularly Warby Parker. You were one of the first investors in Warby. They were some folks that you met very early on in their career. Am I right? Yeah. So there were a few startups we invested in over the years where we would take all of our savings and we would put them into the startups to the point where three years ago, I had to get my parents to loan me money to buy a pickup truck. Because <laughs> you were just dumping it all into every time angel deals. I would take money, I would put in angel deals. First it was five thousand, then ten thousand, then twenty-five thousand, then fifty thousand. And every time I got there, I would put it in. And at the beginning, a summit series as a company, we made some angel investments. We had met those Uber founders and we invested into their Series B round. And when they're raising it. Exactly. Okay. And we had met the Warby Parker founders, specifically Brett, the our co-founder and Brett came and he said, man, I'm going to put in all my personal savings into Warby Parker. And I said, no, we're going to do it as a company because we're a family. And then we had the docs and then we made this investment as a company. Uh, Warby Parker, you know, 
is this amazing eyeglasses company and, and they actually give glasses to people and they do eye surgery. So we went on the first eyeglasses drop and, and we got to know the Warby founders. So and this is, this is really early though, This right? in weren't 2010. One of, one of their first investors or? Yeah. And the very, very first, first seed round it was okay. like a 5 million post. And, and so had they done things before or? This was it. This was the very first seed round of a company now worth billions of dollars. I mean, the, the founders. Did they have? No, they went to um, they went to Wharton Business School. Okay, so which, straight out of college. You which just goes to show, I mean, there is no archetype of of entrepreneur founder. You can have um, folks who went to business school, went to university, dropped out. It doesn't matter. Everyone's got their own secret sauce, and so yeah. we had invested in Warby Parker. And I was running around the world trying to meet people to come to summit events or sponsor summit. And I was trying to go to any event I could possibly go to. I was 24 years old. And I had gotten invited to this event called Google Zeitgeist, which is this Google's annual event. And I don't know how I got invited. I, I went a few times and every year I thought they're definitely made a mistake and are going to take me off. And I was asking the Warby Parker founders because they were at the conference and it was 300 people and they actually deserved to be there. I was asking them, you know, who else was in the first round? And they said, you know, there's a guy who put in, you know, about 50 times more than you did. And 50 times, you know, you know, and he, his name is Vivi Nevo. And I said, you know, I've heard of that guy. He's like this mysterious tech guy. I said, well, what, what's he up to? They said, you know, it was really strange. He met us one time. He asked what the most anyone was investing was. And then he, we told him and he said, I'll do twice that amount. And we said, okay. And he said, done, I'll wire tomorrow. And he's like this intense Israeli guy. He wears all black with white shoes. I'm like, who is this Vivi Nevo character in the all black with white shoes? You heard his name around before. I'd heard it, but I just didn't. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. I mean, his stake must be worth his tens of millions of dollars today. And we're in, the, it was the opening, uh, like, you know, ceremony of the conference where everyone is gathering. And in our conversation at that point, I said, have you guys seen him since? Like, would you talk to him? They said, it was really strange. We've never heard from him since. And at that moment, over their shoulder, I see him in all black and white shoes walking into the room. And he walks straight over to us. And before, I'm like, and they turn around and he takes his arms and he's like the most personable guy I ever met. And he wraps it around the Warby Parker found. He goes, my boys, who's your number one investor? And they're like, you? And he's like, who did the biggest check? And they're like, you? And they're like, and who met you and, and was sent the money the very next day? Who believed in you from day number one? And they're like, you? And he goes, and who's this guy? And they're like, look at me. And I'm like, oh, this is Elliot. He bought Powder Mountain. And before he even knew what that was or anything else got said, he goes, Mr. Mountain Man. Okay, Mr. Mountain. Okay, I see you. And he goes, I love you guys. I see you soon. And he walks away. And I'm like, wow, that is really crazy. <laughs> so the conference goes on. And it's the third day. And I have to go to New York. And I've pulled, scrapped together my savings. And I have like economy ticket, uh, like red eye that night to New York City to do like meetings the next day. And I over here, I see, and I'd like said hi to Vivi Nevo a couple of times, but never talked to him. And I, I'm, I'm walking and he, it was like this awkward link up where I walked by and he was talking to someone and he said, yeah, and tonight I fly on my plane to New York. I was like, 
you know, I, I have to go to New York. Can I, can I get a ride? And he goes, done. I see you at the airport at, you know, seven o'clock. And I'm like, oh my God, this is my chance. I'm like, well, well, what's your number? And, and he goes, you know, text me now. And I like get his number and I text him. And so it's like the day's going and the flight's at seven o'clock and I'm, I'm like totally prepared. I'm like, I'm ready at, you know, five o'clock and I'm going to get to the airport early. And then I get a text from like his assistant and go, flight's pushed back to 7.30. I'm like, okay, it doesn't matter to me. Flight's pushed back to eight. doesn't matter to me. Flight's pushed back to nine. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm just doing more fun things, meeting more people. So it's like, you know, eight o'clock and I'm going to go to the airport early and I'm, I'm, I'm at the conference, but I haven't left yet. And I get a phone call from, from Vivi Nevo's number. And I'm like, hey, Vivi, how's it going? I'm getting ready to go to the airport. And he's like, where are you, mountain man? And I'm like, I- I'm at the conference. I- I'm going. I'm going to get there early. He goes, change your plans. We're leaving now. And I'm like, but I'm not there. And he's like, you better come because this, this plane's going wheels up in 12 minutes. And I'm like, but the, but the airport's 20 minutes away. He goes, that's not my problem, mountain man. And I'm like, I'm coming. I'm coming. So you jump in. A so taxi. I like get in the car and there's like, I have like, I like get in the car and I'm like, to the airport now. And it's like, you know, go to some private terminal. I get there and I, they drive onto the tarmac and he's literally like standing there, like pacing. And he goes, come on, mountain man. You're keeping us all waiting. I'm like, why didn't you tell me? And I like get on, we like pull up the thing and I like sit down and it's like him and this guy who runs, you know, Showtime and all these other things. We're like on the plane, we're going to New York and I'm just wheels up in the air and I'm like, all right, Vivi, this is, I'm so excited. We can finally connect. He goes, I'm going to sleep, buddy. <laughs> I see you another time, Mountain Man. And everyone, and I was like, look at the next person. They're like, sorry, man, I got to work. And then I'm like, in my seat, I'm like by myself. It's dark at night. I'm on this like jet to New York. Everyone's asleep or not talking to me wearing headphones. And I'm like looking out the window. I'm oh, like, man. I don't know what I got myself into, but I'm glad I did the Warby Parker investment. Oh, damn. Did you ever see him again? Never again. One day. He's, wait. No, Vivi uh, was coming out of the never, trailer. Never oh, too funny, man. That reminds me uh, uh, about the time you told me you got to meet with Eric Schmidt in his office at Google. Yeah, so he had spoken. Eric Schmidt had spoken at Summit events. I was and at that I, one, yeah. Yeah, I was always, I'm always trying to connect with folks. Really, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't have dreams of who should be my friends. It's really, you know, we're trying to build this business and we need amazing speakers to inspire the community and amazing people to be part of the community. And so we're always asking, can we go meet with them? And so I asked Eric Schmidt when he's the CEO of Google, you know, can I, I'm in San Francisco and I'd love to meet with you. And he said, yes, come to the Googleplex. And I'd never been to the Googleplex or campus or whatever it's called. And I went in and we went into, you know, his office. You knew, and he said, come meet with me. Also, with some, you. I feel like sometimes they'll like send you on a tour with their like staff and you, you know, see them for five minutes. Yeah. And I went in and into the office and door closed and we spent an hour together. And I asked him in the hour, I said, if you were me, how, what would you do? Like, how would you run summit? What would you do? And he thought about it and he's so thoughtful. And so smart. And he said, I would do two things. So wait, did he like go into like a meditative pose and then like come up like Yoda style? Or was he just like... No, he's just very <laughs> quiet and thoughtful. He said, I would do two things. Number one, 
Can you name any country, any company, any governing body that's run by women, actually run by women, not just the president is a woman, the majority of Congress, the majority of a board of directors. And he said, I challenge you with your summit content, you have a chance to be different. I challenge you to make your entire content team women because wow. that will bring a different perspective to the entire global summit community of what people should listen to. Hmm. And the second challenge he said was, you have the opportunity to really be a generational voice and that matters. And at what, who are you going to put on your stage and what are they going to talk about and make it meaningful, make it really impactful for the world, really inspire the people that come to summit. And we made the change with our content team. And for the last three years, our entire content team has been women. And we really have thought about how can we be a generational voice within summit to bring the conversations and the topics that matter to the forefront. Wow. Fascinating. And then I said, in small talk, you know, it was five o'clock at the end of the day, what are you up to tonight? And I'd always get were you, into- Were you hoping for the invite to I just, go, I uh, don't know. I just somewhere. was trying to say thank okay. you. Yeah. And you know, it's the most nonchalant way. Oh, well, I'm hosting a dinner at my house in Los Angeles at seven. Or in San Francisco, I, you know, of course he's got it. He's playing, he's got the, the, the airfield. He can just, oh, what, oh, what, yeah, wow, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I am have a meeting with the Pope tomorrow and I'm headed to Antarctica. And it was just, you know, I realized in that moment, you know, you know, the, the, the type of like game changing work that these people are doing at the top, also how busy they are. And it just further affirmed that, you know, people like that will always be available to give nuggets or tidbits of wisdom, but mm -hmm. it just reinforced my belief. Like you have to build your peer group that, you know, can actually meet with you because, you know, Eric Schmidt gave me one hour of his time, which was amazing, but he's doing really world changing things with really big time people. Yeah. You're not like on the phone with him the next week, like, Hey, follow up on this topic. It's like, yeah. And you have to understand, you know, he's one of the most important people in the world. And mm -hmm. so I think just that experience being so grateful for what he shared with me and then also having the awareness, you know, of, of his schedule and who he is and to just go back and focus on my peer group. That's amazing. Now, I want to ask you about all these guys that you got to hang out with. Like, I know you spent time with Jeff Bezos and Branson and all that. Like, have any of these other icons sat you down and given you advice? Or is there anything, like, big takeaways you've gotten from these folks? There have been. I'd say the biggest takeaway that I've gotten from everyone has not been anything they've said. It's been that none of these people, like Branson or Bezos or Eric Schmidt, have ever taken a cell phone out in front of me. Really? And even a, an entire day with Jeff Bezos, he, I can't even confirm if he has a cell phone on him because he never took one out. And even the times at Necker Island with Richard Branson, I've never seen him. I don't know if you have on a cell phone. And now what I, mentioned I've never had. And no. I've never seen Eric Schmidt on a cell phone. And the list goes on and on. And what I realized reflecting back on that is they're giving 100% presence mm -hmm. to every moment that they're in. And that their lives and their businesses are so well organized that they're not getting urgent emails. They're not getting notes that decisions mm. need to be made today. They're having a process in place to make decisions on monthly basis, weekly basis, and that allows them to be totally present and engaged. And I just reflect to us and the people around us who 
have one one millionth going on as these people. And yeah. we're totally in our phones. We're totally addicted. We're not present at all. Hey, I hope you're enjoying these stories as much as I am. I want to know from you, who should I interview next? Maybe it's your favorite celebrity, your favorite athlete, your favorite author, or just someone you know who has a story that's never been told before. Comment below. Let me know who it is. And then hit that subscribe button so you get notified when I interview the person that you pick. And that has by far been my biggest. Yeah, you made me want to hide my uh, phone on the table, even though it's just uh, notes for a combo. But yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, yeah, actually, the, the first time I had dinner with uh, Hector Ceviche, his team came around and to everyone was like, hey, you know, Hector kindly requests that everyone puts their phone on airplane mode during this dinner. And it was a dinner for 20 people. Yeah, I mean, they take everything they do incredibly seriously in that family. Yeah, yeah. And it just shows like the the prioritizing of presence with some of these people that are top of the world. It's amazing. 100%. And so what about some of these sports icons you've hung out with, like Kobe Bryant or uh, Djokovic? I know you interviewed Kobe in Shanghai. Was that? I mean, they're all hyper-present. They're all very focused. Um, and they're all really engaged. You know, I come away spending time with these time with these people, realizing how busy they are, but really liking them. And I find when I'm clawing my way to the top, the people on the way are not hyper-present and they're often in my face and rude. And I really uh, don't have great experiences. But I find when I get to the very, very top, basically every single one of these people is hyper-present, hyper-engaged, and it's not just with me. When President Clinton did an event with us and there were all these well-known people there, he spent half an hour in the kitchen talking to the people working in the kitchen and just telling stories with them with no cameras. Mm. I, I find that these people, are, they're very engaged with, with everybody around them. That's so interesting. Yeah, I was just uh, on, on Necker, Richards Island. I got to go there and um, during one of the dinners, he was cooking. And serving, uh, then after he finished cooking, he was on the buffet line, like serving people meat. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean at yeah. Summit, I mean, it was amazing. Everyone observed, you know, Jeff Bezos didn't come in and come out. You know, he spent, you know, basically the entire event at the event, you know, and going at it with people in a positive way, letting people come, letting them give feedback, listening. I mean, he's got, you know, his security around him and he's just there. Oh, dude, I tell you what happened with, with me, with Jeff at Summit. I don't know if I've ever told you this. So he was outside in the courtyard and a little circle started to form around him. It was like maybe five people. And I was standing about 10 feet away. And I was like, man, I'd love to go talk to Jeff Bezos right now, but I don't know what to say or like how to go in the conversation. And, you know, everyone had their, their name tags on. And, and uh, so I just kind of like inched my way over a little bit and was like really shy on, on the sidelines of the conversation. And Jeff's holding court for like five people. He sees me like shyly inching up. He looks at my name tag, looks me in the eyes like, hey, Craig, sticks his hand out, shakes my hand, and then keeps on talking. He like pulled me into the group. He could tell that I was like shy on the, on the fence and he like went out of his way to make me feel comfortable. He doesn't know who the hell I am. You know, I'm just some random attendee at the conference. I thought that was like so amazing. Literally the richest man in the world just like makes that time. Yeah, that's very much been my exact experience. Yeah. Um, like I found Esther Perel, you know, this amazing relationship expert when the session's over, she doesn't run away. 
to her special room. She's in the hallways listening to everyone's personal stories. Yeah. And because she loves it and totally engaged. Yeah. Another th- actually uh, time happened to me on Necker Island. I was there with an entrepreneur group and they did like a little uh, thing where everyone got up and gave uh, their best like three minute takeaway. Right. And I got up and I was like, guys, give me a, a little leeway on this because I'm working on my public speaking. And I start talking and I look and I see that Richard is in the crowd listening to my talk. And so I give my talk. It was, you know, whatever. And later that afternoon, we're at this bar called Saba Bar on Virgin Gorda, which is like the neighboring island. And Sarah and I are sitting at the bar and Richard walks up to the far side of the bar. And he's all by himself. And he orders a drink from the bartender. And I was like, oh, Sarah, there's Richard. He's all by himself. Like, should we go talk to him? Like, what should we say? And, you know, we we're both kind of shy. And we decided to just, like, let him have his peace. As soon as he gets his drink, he looks over to us, walks all the way around the bar, like, probably walks through, like, 20 people, posts up next to me and is like, so you're working on your public speaking let me share with you a few things that have worked really well for me. And he just gave me like a 15 minute download of his top tips for public speaking. Like he's like, you know, make it conversational, pick one person in the crowd and like, you know, go back and forth with them. Make sure everyone in the room is having a good time. Don't use slides, whatever you do. You know, if you're going to use slides, use pretty pictures, just, you know, make sure that it's like, like a like fun, exciting conversation with the crowd. And, and it was just amazing that like he, he went out of his way to do that with me. Yeah. We find, you know, People puttering around on unsuccessful people, flipping through Facebook, flipping through YouTube, going half-ass on things. And you find that these people are really successful. They're not flipping through their phone in your talk. It's, in fact, the opposite. He's the most engaged in your talk because you realize every person in the world has something to teach and every person in the world has something to learn. And they Mm. really believe that. They're really totally engaged and learning from as many people as they can. So you told me about a year ago that after spending time with all of these folks, that there was one thing they were all doing an extraordinary amount of every day. Do you remember what it was? Leading. I can't think of any person who I've met who's extremely successful, who's not reading at least 25 books a year. So that's a book every two weeks. And I think you said they were reading at least an hour or two a day. That and is Buffett what I've found. Four hours a day? That, that's, what I've, that's what I've observed. They are not reading articles. I think that keeping up on current events is way overhyped. Again, it goes to the proportional amount you should keep up with current events. Read the Sunday New York Times, know the headlines versus, you know, go deep in your interest areas versus the reality of, hours a day that we're reading of total gobbledygook and nonsense. And what they're doing is in those, they're spending the same amount of time in front of a screen or reading as we are or watching, but they're going all the way deep. They're, they're, you know, they're spending those two hours a day going really deep on a subject and they're coming out of the year having read 50 books and, and really having gone deep on those topics. And we're forgetting the next day, the dozens of gobbledygook articles that we've ah. read. Fascinating. And you, you told me to go watch a Bill Gates interview. I mean, you see Bill Gates interviewed on any topic and they're talking to him about energy and, you know, he'll drop a fact like, well, the fuel is one of the best inventions of all time because it's 30, it's 30 times denser than batteries. Yet here's why we need to get off of fuel. And here's the path. And there's, 
wow, this is not, you know, the armchair activists that we know who are hitting the talking points. This is him having gone all the way in. You may agree or disagree with Bill Gates on this, but him learning facts and sharing what he's learned. What happens with everybody that we know is that we listen and we regurgitate. That is very different than learning information and creating your own data set and fact pattern and your own conclusion. And that really sounds like something that can only come from going deep, aka reading a book. Yeah, reading a quick article that takes four minutes about energy consumption in the world that you're flipping through is not learning about energy consumption. Yeah, fascinating. So meeting these icons now, has that given you more insight on how to size up a founder for an angel investment? So there are all these founders are unique. And I wish that there was a method, but for every time there's, you know, the Travis Kalanick archetype, you know, there's someone who's, you know, exactly the op opposite, you know, uh, an introspective, thought, thoughtful, um, thoughtful leader, like a Sher like a Sheryl Sandberg or a Jessica Jackley of Kieber, the Warby Parker founders. I mean, I've found that really what it comes down to is their conviction in a space and, you know, their belief that, you know, this is their life's purpose. And I've had some experiences where I can just see it in people's eyes. Um, mm. Like the first time I heard about Bitcoin four years ago, and I met someone named Brock Pierce. And I He's asked him, yeah, but I asked him what he was up to and just the way he told me about cryptocurrency and uh how he'd put his entire life aside yeah. and this was everything. And there was just an intensity, forget currently what's happening with markets and price and this or that. I'm talking about seeing a market and dedicating your life to something. And so I've seen that over the years, the, 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 the original Uber founders had the same belief. They gave everything. And so you'll see these startups where there's just, there's a total buy-in yeah. to a vision and mission. That's so wild. You know, it's like when you think of Elon Musk and he's got his big mission that like humans will populate space within the next two decades or hundred years or whatever he says, you know? And Bill Gates said a computer on every desk in every home. And if you think Henry Ford was like, you know, a Model T in, in every driveway. I think probably one of the biggest mistakes is underestimating introverts. If I could go mm -hmm. back and say, what are my mistakes in my 20s? It's very easy to believe in and back extroverts. Yeah. They're so positive. They're so inspiring. And a lot of them are very successful. But there's just as many, if not more successful people who are introverts. And a lot of the famous people that we see today, the Mark Zuckerbergs, they're not wowing you from the stage with an amazing keynote speech. The Google founders aren't wowing you with their big, voracious voices and big visions. And what they're doing is they're introspective, they're thoughtful, they're brilliant. They know how to take inputs and realize the more diverse the inputs, you know, the more diverse the outputs. And so I think really having awareness that these, the successful people in sports, in business, in nonprofits are just as often introverts and do not walk past them. That's so fascinating. So they're not always the guys talking. They're the guys that are doing. So how do you size up an introvert then? Because 
you know, by nature, they're not as big of a storyteller or a, a vision seller. You just have say. to, you have to, you have to get to know people. You mm. have to, you can't size anybody up in one meeting. And in fact, an extrovert would be more difficult because they sound so good in one meeting. It's easier for them to obfuscate the realities and pitch you big dreams when that's not congruent with what's actually happening. And so I think with anybody, you have to, you have to set fact patterns. You know, you have to get to know people and here's what they say they're going to do in a month in two months in four months in six months in one year. And you have to follow that. And it's very often, you know, the quiet introspective leaders that are blowing away their, their numbers and their goals. And you say, wow, this person is just incredible. I didn't expect this at all. I've been fortunate to hear some of the crazy things that have gone down in your wild ride, but, um, that's why I was so excited to get you here today was to share some of these with everyone else. And the one that's coming to mind for me right now is that Sean Parker story you told me. Would you be okay with sharing that one? Yeah. So that is from eight years ago. And the context is important because I'm, you know, 24 years old and I'm like the Forrest Gump of meeting all these interesting entrepreneurs and founders. And so even before the eight years ago, at the beginning of the summit journey, we'd run into Sean Parker and he'd spoken at um, some summit events. And he actually asked us for an introduction if, or if we knew of any music companies. And my co-founder, Jeff, introduced him to the founders of Spotify. Okay. And for those who don't know who Sean Parker is, he was one of the co-founders of Napster, then one of Facebook's very early investors. He was portrayed by Justin Timberlake in the, the movie, The Social Network. And, you know... I definitely could describe him as eccentric billionaire. Yeah. And one of the dumbest things I ever did is when he said, I've got a vision for the music industry. And, you know, we told him, oh, you should meet Spotify. And he ended up investing in one of their first rounds and I think it was like a billion dollar plus, you know, successful investment. We never even asked to invest in Spotify. It didn't even occur to us. So it's like, you know, there's this space around what everybody's doing and often you're so focused on what you're doing, you just miss the space next to it. And that was, you know, just looking back, wow, how did we not ask to invest in Spotify? So when I was running around trying to meet people, trying to get people to come to Summit, I had made my way to Los Angeles for the Clive Davis pre-Grammy party, which is the party of all parties and every person you could possibly imagine is there. And I'm trying to, you know, play it very cool there because I'm trying to recruit speakers for summit events. This is my purpose. Go recruit speakers for summit events. So I'm there and, you know, touching base with people. And, you know, at the event, I run to Sean Parker and I hadn't seen him in a few years. And I said, oh, how are you? And okay, cool. See you next time. So I'm walking out of the event a few hours later. And as I'm walking out again, he's walking out. And I say, all right, man, see you soon. He says, biz now. We're going to the Grammys tomorrow. You got to come. Okay, man, I'll come. He says, all right, we're meeting at three o'clock. I say, great, man. What else should I know? And he's like going farther away from me. What else should I know? He goes, three o'clock. Email my assistant if you have any questions. And don't forget, you need a tux. All right, man. So I'm, oh my gosh. I wake up the next day. I have no information. I write his assistant. Hey, uh, is it this hotel at three o'clock? It's just confirming no reply. So I go and I, a tuxedo is like 
really expensive. So I like makeshift this tuxedo and I get to this hotel and I get there at 2.45 to the lobby. And I'm, wow, I don't even know what is to expect. And, and meanwhile, you know, my brother's trying to get into the music industry. He's 20, mm. still in college. I'm like, hey man, so I got invited to the Grammys and I think you should get a tux ready and let's like, see what we can finagle. Oh, wow. Okay. Be on standby. So I'm in the lobby and at like three o'clock, uh, one of the, f- the first employee of Facebook walks in and I'm like, oh, hey, man. He goes, hey, I'm like, are you here for the Grammys? And he goes, yeah. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. He go- How'd you get invited? He goes, oh, the craziest thing happened. You know, Sean Parker's assistant, you know, sent me a first class plane ticket and said to come and they put me up in this amazing suite here. I'm like, oh wow, how's, how's Sean? You've been hanging out with him this weekend? He goes, I haven't seen him all weekend. And I'm like, really? I'm like, he's like, have you? I'm like, yeah, I saw him last night. He goes, wow, yeah, I've been trying to reach him. I'm like, oh wow. So then like 20 minutes later, like another really well-known tech person comes in, same story, got flown in, staying in a suite, hasn't seen Sean all weekend. Like, wow, you saw him? Like, yeah, I saw him last night. 30 minutes later, Daniel Eck walks in, you know, founder and CEO of Spotify. I'm like, wow, same, he hasn't even seen Sean Parker. So now it's like four o'clock and everyone's texting. How many of you have the, of you There's like there? eight of us. Okay. And they're all texting and no one and can reach Sean Parker. Okay. Finally, like someone gets a text. It's like, Sean will be there. So we're all in tuxedos in the lobby of the hotel. And I think the Grammys start at, you know, like six o'clock. And so it's like 4.30, 4.45, 5 o'clock, 5.15, 5.30. We've been there like two and a half hours. Oh, man. And we're just, I mean, and someone's like, it's good, man. It's okay. He's late. And then out of nowhere, you can see the commotion coming through the lobby of the hotel. There's an army of like 25 people. There's PR, there's assistance, there's security. And there in the center, leading in front of everyone, like flying V formation, is Sean Barker. And he's got like a hand of tickets. And he goes, let's do it. Like, we're going to the Grammys. And everyone's like, and before you can even know what to do, they're already past us in flying V formation. We're like behind. And then simultaneously, like all these black cars, they come screeching up. And we get in the car, like, biz now. I'm like, I'm here. I'm here. And I, I get in. Did you get your brother in? And well, I'm, I'm, we're in the cars. I'm like, um, do, do, you, do you have uh, an extra ticket? He goes, and it says, just no extra tickets. And I text him around, I'm like, stand by, there's a way. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we like get there and like we're in and he has like a suite. And I'm like, Austin, like, stand by, like, come nearby i think we'll work something out we're in this suite and sean's like this is too far away i can't see anything and he tells him he's like i want all floor seats and so someone like comes back like 30 minutes later with like this hand tick you know hand of floor seats and it's you know you look at that's like thousands of dollars a ticket oh damn and i'm like and like no one's like really looking i'm like (laughs) i like take the two and um, I'm like, you know, it's, it's okay. I'll just go for an hour and I'll bring him back. And I like call him up and I'm like, I got an extra. And we like, I get him, we go in, we go on the floor. And he's like, you know, he'd been trying to work it with like 
all these you know labels and people and music and then meanwhile we're literally on the floor like everyone's there jay-z and beyonce oh, and we're on the floor and we're in like the best seats all the big people are even not even where we are they're behind we're like, hey how's it going saying hi and she's like do our time on the floor and i'm like all right man we got to go return these tickets so we got to give it to the other people in the suite and we like go back and we go up to the suite and you know it's like a long show you know it's yeah. only been like an hour hour and a half okay. and we give it and some other people go and then there I am with my brother and I'm like, all right, man, we did it. We broke into the music industry. Like, this is our step. Oh, it's so great. And your brother's a proper rock star now. Now he's, he is. He's playing he, Coachella. His band is called Magic Giant and they're big time. Yeah. So and it's so funny. But then he was, he was 20 yeah, he spent now. one year in LA at that point telling people that he had a place to stay, but could he just couch surf at their house just so he could make industry connections. And for one year straight, he couch surfed across Los Angeles. So that was it. And it was just, it was literally the real stories of us trying to like use our, you know, I could have said to Sean, I can't make it tomorrow because I had to change a plane ticket and I had to buy a tux. But it, whether it was the White House event and saying yes to Yossi or taking my $4,000 of savings and going to the Hamptons to then meet the sponsor of the first summit event or saying yes to Sean Parker, like it was about saying yes, showing up and then working you yeah. know, working my way in. So that makes me think of the David Rubenstein story. Yeah. So when I was in Washington, D.C., just dropped out of college, there was this event at the National Economic Club. And David Rubenstein was the chairman of the club. He's a multi-billionaire, founder of the biggest private equity firm in the world. And what I found is, and you can see in all my stories I'm telling, you know, there's always a way into these events. I mean, Alex Benayan wrote a book called The Third Door. That is, you know, life is about three doors. The first door, everyone waits in line and you're never going to get in. The second door, where all the successful people already made it take. But the third door is all the doors I've told you about. All the Elliot Bisnows and the brothers. Working it with yeah. Sean and the ticket and the this. And mm -hmm. there's always a third door. And with Alex, it's, you know, getting to the nightclub, running down the alley, banging, going through the kitchen, banging on the door, climbing through a window. And these things that seem far away, there's always a way to get in. Mm -hmm. And so here I was with no credentials, no background, no relationship. And I thought, man, at the National Economic Club, a thousand business CEOs are going to be there to see David Rubenstein interview Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard and running Barack Obama's National Economic Council. This is in 2009 when Obama's in office. And they're like two mm -hmm. of the biggest people in DC, a thousand power players. Like, so I'm going to get in. And I, w I, and I went with my dad. He helped me, like, find a ticket. And we were halfway to the back. <clears throat> and so the speech has started, the interview. And 20 minutes into the interview, protesters walk onto the stage. I got my way in. They got their way in. I don't know how, but they did it. And <laughs> yeah. they walked in. And there was three protesters. And they just walked onto the stage. And you couldn't even tell they were protesters. They were they, they had the event attire on and they walked on the stage and they just unfurled a banner right in front of David Rubenstein and Larry Summers. Oh, the banner was 15 feet wide and eight feet tall. And it said, I don't know, they were protesting the stimulus package or something like that. It was a good opportunity to protest. And we're all sitting there. Okay, well, the security is going to remove them. And there was no security. Like, I guess there was 
Larry Summers didn't bring security. David Rubenstein didn't bring security. There was no event security or they didn't know what to do. And there's 1,000 people sitting in the audience of the most powerful business people. And there's David Rubenstein and Larry Summers hidden behind a banner on the stage. And these people are chanting, you know, Larry Summers, blah, blah, blah. You're no good. Out you go. Larry Summers, you're no good. You need to resign. It was like one of these. Oh, wow. And it was so awkward in the room. Yeah. And it had been like 30 seconds of chant. And it even occurred to me sitting there, the protesters didn't think they would be there that long because there's all the camera crews in the back, CNN, Fox, NBC, ABC, everyone recording live. Yeah, they and ran the, out of chance because they thought they'd get removed. And meanwhile, I had met David Rubenstein a few times and he never really paid attention to me, but maybe he knew me. And Larry Summers, I've been trying to meet. And so I get out of my seat. I fast walk to the front of the room. Everyone's sitting there hidden behind the banner. I fast walk to the front of the room and I literally say to the protesters, all right, everybody, time's up. Thank you very much. And I escort them off. Everyone's looking at me. Every one of the thousand people sees me. I look back at David Rubenstein and Larry Summers. I give them a wink. They're like baffled. And I continue on. Dave Rubenstein has now come and spoken to Summit because we built a bond over that. Well, you would say it is not physically possible because you're a nothing. And then this scenario, it's almost like a waiter messing up your order. And you're like, this is the worst order. And then the waiter comes back with three cakes and extra entrees. You're yeah. like, this is the best waiter giving you a 40% tip. And that was the experience that I had. So how would you describe this? Is it just taking bold action when you see an opportunity? Or I, I love your... Theme for Summit, the tagline is make no small plans. And I feel like there's like a tie in here, but I want to hear what think you look at. It. People have way less of a plan than you would think. You would think mm. on that day at the economic club, there would be plans and there just aren't. Just in general, there's lots of white space. There's lots of opportunity. And it just goes to show if I had tried to Wait after, you know, when you go to a, a talk or a speech, everyone tries to rush the stage after. That's like the kids walking to class. The real way is when there's a protester, you take a little risk and you build your bond that way. And I think in all these situations, you have to be different. The most important thing is being different. And if you're the same, you're never going to get anywhere. You're never going to break through. And I could have called David Rubenstein a hundred times and waited in line, talked to Larry Summers, and I would have been one of anyone. But suddenly here I was saving them from a protest or an embarrassment. And suddenly I break through the pack when I'm 23 years old. Man, I love that. And so thinking about your life now, so we're here on Powder Mountain, which you and Summit acquired a few years ago. And now... You have people uh, like David Rubenstein buying homes in this neighborhood that you built on this mountain that you bought. Like, how does that come about? Well, I always heard an amazing story about Apple. And the story was that they were designing all of their incredible products and messaging and talking to each other on Blackberries. Yeah. And just thinking, this is ridiculous. That they're not talking on their own. <sighs> this thing is a clunk of junk. Mm. And... I think in a lot of businesses, there's adjacent opportunities that don't seem obvious unless you rebrand what your community does. And so if 
Apple viewed themselves as a computer company, that would be a huge mistake. What they were was a technology company and their products were computers and now you can make a phone. And I think with Summit, we built a community company. And if you were to say, mm. Elliot spent all these years building an events company, that would be a huge mistake because it would pigeonhole you into thinking, Elliot is an events company, an events producer. And then you're only as good as your last event, right? Yeah, and then you don't have anywhere to go, right? If you've been mm. marketing um, consumer goods your whole life for 10 years, and you say, my job is I market consumer goods, that is not a good way to define yourself. You should say, I'm a visionary marketer with these specialties, and one of the things I do is consumer goods. What else can I do? Love and it. so I think you know, viewing ourselves as a community company, building events for the Summit community is what we had been doing, but this idea that we could build a resort community you know, a mountain resort community suddenly seemed, wow, we have community. We could partner with someone who knows how to raise money, who understands development, and we could build a mountain resort and use community as the, the center of that. And so that is my big lesson to take away is shift what you view yourself doing and a lot more opportunities will open up for you. Mm. So look at yourself. Don't look at like the specific thing you're doing, but think of like the bigger picture and how to define it more broadly, because then it'll open up the opportunities for yourself and the visions for yourself to have. Yeah, if you're a musician and you define yourself as a musician, that would be really problematic, as opposed to someone who storytells or uses music in any number of mediums. Well, now you can, there's so much you could do with music, mm. right? You can write music for shows. You can, I mean, it's just, there's, you, you can sign singer-songwriters, you can, but if you just define yourself as, I am a musical band, you're in a lane. And so yeah. you just want to define yourself more broadly. I love that. And it's so fascinating because the, the way your life is set up now, all these folks are coming to you. They're coming to live in your neighborhood. Um, David Rubenstein himself, I don't think, has a lot here. But Tim Ferriss is right around the corner. Richard Branson, Reed Hastings, CEO of Netflix. Uh, Ken Howery, co-founder of PayPal. I mean, some of the most amazing people in the world are like investing to be your neighbor. It's just so fascinating. Well, we have a really different vision for what a mountain resort can, community can be. We have capped the size of homes. Like here we are in our cabin that's only 1,500 square feet. So we don't believe in big houses. We believe in beautiful small homes. We believe that when you buy a house, the first thing you should do before you buy it is learn who your neighbors are, not buy a house, and then afterwards figure out if you're going to like your neighbors or not. Mm, right? We, we're trying to turn you know, a mountain resort on its head. And, you know, you should feel like you're living in a national park. You know, you should, your home should totally commune um, and speak with nature and with the natural surroundings. So that was our vision for Powder Mountain. It's an amazing public ski resort. This will be the 48th year that it's open. And on the backside, on about 500 acres, we're building a boutique little mountain village. And we think it has a really strong ethos and value system, you know, of people who want to be good neighbors, who care about the world we live in, and, um, you know, want to live, you know, a really big life in, you know, pristine wilderness. It's a very uniquely thought out community. I Everything love that, about meeting your neighbors first. Yeah. You know, I, I really admire and have learned a lot from seeing these like unique routes you take with normal everyday things. And it's fascinating seeing it, how it's unfolded for your business. But like the day to day stuff that I see with you, like, for example, you don't do phone calls or text messaging. 
Yeah, I've tried to avoid any phone call for two years. That's not a FaceTime. Yeah, you'll do a little bit of texting, but eventually, like if, if you and I are going to have a conversation, it's, all, it's always I see. And you're one of the only people who FaceTimes me. So I don't really understand why people don't FaceTime. Because if someone told us 10 years ago, you could literally push the exact same button as a call and you can have a magical video chat with someone anywhere in the world in perfect, perfect speed. Everyone would say, of course. Right. And instead, we push the button that doesn't allow you to see them and doesn't allow you to really connect with them. And we do regular calls. And so I've made a commitment to not do almost any calls under any circumstances that are not a FaceTime for the last couple of years. And it's been a game changer. I mean, especially when I'm getting to know people. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, meeting in person is the best, but a FaceTime or a WhatsApp video chat is very close behind that compared to a phone call, which is many, many degrees worse. And you really stick to that. Yes. I know. Yes. So recently someone that anyone would love to have a phone call with wanted to have a phone call with you and you told him no tell that story yeah, i mentioned it to you because i said you know man i really try to uphold to my principles and richard branson wrote and said are you available to chat about something yeah and i said absolutely for you i'm available anytime you want and then i inserted in the email just FaceTime me or WhatsApp video call me anytime. Here's my number. Did you say I only do calls on FaceTime? I didn't say you that. Okay, okay. You just hinted that. But I just said that. it was very clear. FaceTime okay. or WhatsApp video call me anytime. Got I've it. also made a huge effort to not schedule phone calls. I, I hate scheduling phone calls. I find it totally destroys the flow of my day. I understand for some things it's critical, but I really like to be in a free flow day. And since most people aren't on the phone all the time, anyone I need to reach is generally available anyway. And so, you know, I wrote it and he didn't call me for like a week. And I remember, I think that's when I was talking to you and I was lamenting. I'm like, you know, man, it would have been really cool if he'd actually FaceTime me. And it was probably- Yeah, you thought maybe you're like, maybe I screwed up. It was right. probably a little naive of me. Hmm. I should have just said, what time works for you? And I'll schedule yeah. it with your assistant. And I kind of went on with my life. And then I was walking around one morning. And there comes this plus 001, some international number on FaceTime. And I'm on the phone with Alex Benayan, also on FaceTime. Okay. And I'm like, I think Richard is calling me. I got to go. And it's all you do is you just hit end and accept. Okay. It's one button. And there's Alex. We're goofballing around, talking about nothing. End and accept. Like magic. And there he is in the hair and the palm trees. Oh my gosh. And I think just immediately I knew, I thought, you know what? If this was just a phone call, I would be on the other end of some receiving line, some random voice. Maybe I'm wearing some stuffy button-down shirt, sitting in a conference room, but I was on a power walk around the neighborhood. I'm sweating. I'm in my t-shirt. I got palm trees behind me too. And I'm like, ah, how's it going? It's so great. And you guys and, have like a real moment, right? Yeah. And you actually connect and you see people's humanity. And so it doesn't matter who it is seeing that humanity, but like you want to connect with people. You want to look in their eyes. You want to have experiences with them and you know, because people are all over the world, connecting on a video chat is really, really a game changer. And it forces them to 
connect with you and not be multitasking when you're on the phone, right? Exactly. So it's like a hack. How many of your calls do you have today and you're on a phone call and they're just totally disengaged? Yeah. And they're like, oh, awesome, man. I'm like, dude, I didn't say anything that warrants an <laughs> awesome reply. I asked you a question. Yeah. And so, yes, FaceTiming literally forces someone's total presence. And I will even yell at people on FaceTime. I'm just like, be present, get engaged. And also we'll get to like lessons I think people should learn, but the art of being able to positively push people's buttons and trash talk them is a lost art form. Mm. And I find that Facebook, FaceTime is such a good medium for trash talking and pushing people's buttons. And it's just like all these calls, you just don't want to get lost. The worst thing is getting lost in the shuffle of phone calls. Because that's kind of our business world, right? We go to our office, we do these emails, we do these calls, we try to do these deals. And let's go back to walking to class and walking with everyone else. You don't want to be on emails and phone calls because then you're just like every other person. You want to be the different person who's taking your call from the mountain, you're inspiring them with energy, and they're just loving you, that this person rocks. So tell me about this trash talking because that, is very interesting. You know, most people, when they're on a business yeah. call, they're like, hello, sir, how can I, you know, make this deal go well? And you're, you're talking smack or like, what do you mean by that? So there's an art to be okay. able to trash talk someone that first it has to be always in play and positivity and, and, and fun and love, but you also have to establish a rapport. I couldn't trash talk someone the minute that I met them. That okay. would be really awkward and uncomfortable. Hey, nice to meet you. Goods with the blue shirt. Like, that would be horrible. Right. But as you get to know someone and you're giving to them and showing love and showing favors and um, you're building the relationship, which can even happen within 20 minutes or 30 minutes, you can start inserting all these playful moments and jabs. Give me an example. Think, Dude, I'm going to take your pen. And oh. you're not going to have it now. I'm going to have your pen. I'm going to... Like little fun, just, silly just things. Fun. That you're just like, they don't mean anything. It's like camaraderie almost. Exactly. Or taking someone's notebook and just starting to draw on it. Or just like really silly things. Um, like one time I had a meeting and, and this was year, uh, when I was like 25 at Goldman Sachs. And it was with my friend Will. And he had a big new job there. And I don't know what I was trying to get out of him. But he, we set a meeting at, at 9 a.m. And so trying to be my fun me. I called the office at 8.30 and some, Will McDonough's, Will McDonough's line. And I said, hey, this is Elliot. They're like, yes, sir, how can I help you? I'm like, quick thing, I'm coming in at nine. Do me a favor. We're gonna have an epic breakfast for all of us, for you, for Will. I want you to order, I said, this is a bagel place. I want bagels, I want this, I want this, all the eggs. I want you to order it, get it on the table and we're gonna all chop it up together. Great meeting. So meanwhile, I go, I, I go to the meeting. I'm excited. It's in New York City. I'm Are you working. told that to his secretary or his assistant or? Kind of, who I thought was his assistant. So I'm thinking I'm going to be building rapport. I get to the office. I'm totally underdressed because I'm trying to be different. I walk in and Will sees me. He's like, what the hell do you think you're doing? I'm like, what do you mean? I got his breakfast. He goes, that was my boss's boss. And we were in like our executive line and I was on a line and I said, I'm so, so sorry. Would you mind grabbing that? I think it's my 8.30 conference call. 
And I just like, you know, yelled at his boss, like, listen, buddy. I want, oh like God. some managing director oh, of wow. Goldman Sachs, like, order me some pancakes and waffles. <laughs> and, I, and, and I'm like, okay, well, where's the food? And, <laughs> and he's like, we didn't order it. I'm like, but I'm starving. Oh, man. But at least these things build bond and they build comedy. And like so much of life isn't always entertaining. And so these fun moments, maybe I'll say to you, hey, you know, who's someone we know in common and we'll, we'll prank call them, you know, who's someone, what's some fun. So I'm just, I'm always trying to drum up like these fun experiences. And it's the same, even with the people I work with, I would say 90% of the time I'm talking to people, I'm trying to have it not be about work. I'm trying it to be rechecking in. How's life? How's your family? What can I help you with? What's going on? Funny stories. And then when you have the work conversations, it's so much easier because you have relationships. Like the big example of this is, you know, people in Congress in America, they didn't used to jet back and forth. They just moved to Washington because, you know, back in the day, it was a lot harder to travel. Yeah. And so they actually got to know each other. Washington was a lot less crowded. Mm. They actually, everyone really became friends. There was not the media landscape of today. So there wasn't as much, you know, war you know, and war, words of war happening. Yeah. And there were real relationships. And so you actually really could work on things because there were real relationships. Now it's like the Red Sox versus the Yankees, you yeah. know, in politics, and there's no relationships. And so mm. my whole thing is just really, really deep relationships with as many people as possible, because then when they're, whether it's a hard conversation or whether it's like, we just have to make decisions, there's a real trust. Yeah. You told me the other day that you feel relationships need to be nurtured and that's a big mistake people make is forgetting it. Totally. I mean, they say relationships are like muscles, you know, and you have to work them like you'd, you'd work out in a gym. But I think, you know, in your life, you want to build equity in things, whether it's your business, but more importantly, relationships. You know, mm -hmm. when you're, the most important thing you can do in your 20s is show up to your 30s with relationships. Not that you made when you were 29 or 28, but that you made when you were 17, 18, 22, relationships that you're carrying for five years or 10 years, we all have them, a couple of them. But imagine if you had 50 or 100 of real relationships. People, like one thing I'll do all the time is I'll do pranks on people that I love and then I'll literally get dozens of people involved in the pranks. And so it's almost like forcing people to go to improv class. And then we're literally doing, mm -hmm. we're always collaborating. We have email chains and all these people I've fallen in touch with, out of touch with, now we're connected again. So it can be really simple. And then you show up at 30 years old, you know, everyone's got a college degree, but not everyone has this like Rolodex. Of well, all the people who are 40 now at 50 are going to be out of the game. And all the people that are 30 are going to be running the game when they're 40. And all the people who are 20 are going to be just in the middle of the game at 30. And so, yeah, it's, it's this flow. Of, of people and, you know, relationships that you, that you want to build. And the best way to build them, look, it's why people try to build, play golf together. And golf is like a, a, a three out of 10. It's a really nice way to bond, but it's, you know, I, I'd rather go on a hike and jump in the river with someone and, or going, you know, go in the sauna and we're sweating together, or, you know, yeah. we're pranking someone together or we're going on an excursion together. Or we all are, you know, there's so many fun things you can do that cost no money. Where experiential. Experiential. Like. So your face timing is experiential. It's not just like. Yeah, you're in your city and you're yeah. all, joint, you know, composting together and getting your hands dirty or someone's planting a garden and you get a bunch of friends over to help and you leave the day and you're like covered in dirt and your feet are covered in dirt. And it's like, this is a connection. So nurturing relationships, some of your favorite 
ways are, are FaceTime. You get that one-on-one -on -one yep. connection. Uh, doing experiences with people instead of like meetings or something like that. So instead of coffee, you'd like say invite someone on a hike, yep. something like that, or just composting. I, yeah, I, I also love meeting random people. I mean, my general experience, whether I go to a random music show or people randomly writing me on Instagram, is almost everyone is really awesome. That's my experience because, you know, growing up, I was doing the exact same thing. I was reaching out to all these to all these people. And I just really like meeting people with different stories. And I have a lot of friends. I mean, immense amounts that I met because they wrote me on Instagram. I wrote them on Instagram. Um, and then we just straight up video chatted because it was like, wow, how are we not friends? And you just took three random people to Costa Rica, I think, right? From an Instagram? Yeah, post? we did a summit trip. We did, we did a summit trip, a summit jungle in Costa Rica. So you're going and I, and I thought, you know what? I, have, I could sell the final five spots or I could do a post and invite five people from anywhere in the world to come. And so I said, who needs to come? Who's, will this trip change their life? And over a thousand people applied and commented wow. and messaged us. And we picked five people from around the world to come, all of which I became friends with because they were awesome people. That's and great. so I just think there's so many great people all around us in our towns and our communities. And I've, I've gained so much value from meeting the people around me. And you hear all these stories of these big names and these big timers, and that really has not been almost any of my experience. Those are the funny stories, but my friends and my relationships are just the people around me and my community and my neighborhood and, and kind of you know random people that I'll meet from around the globe in my travels or um, you know through literally Instagram messages that I've become friends with. That's great. So I'm, I'm just like, geeking out right now, just thinking how I can apply this myself. You know, I just was connected with someone at a really powerful company that wants to have a chat to see if there's business to be done. So I was going to say, oh, you know, let's grab coffee at Soho House or something like that. But now I'm thinking maybe I should say, hey, let's go hike Runyon Canyon or, you know, hit them with a surprise FaceTime call or something. I mean, like, what, what would you suggest? Is I mean, that, I would do, I on the right track here? Yeah, I would do, I would look up the top 25 things that you want to do in LA. Okay. And then I would do all your meetings at those things. So there's like three wow. insane botanical gardens in Los Angeles mm -hmm. and I want to see all of them. So I would schedule meetings there. I like to schedule meetings. Uh, like I like to walk and talk because I mean, we're sitting now, but ideally why would I be sitting for a meeting? It's, I'd rather be walking and yeah. getting exercise. Um, yeah, whether, you know, whether, you know, going hiking, finding a river. Um, I mean, there's so many things that cost no money that are so awesome to do. And I try really, really hard to do those things. So great. So you just met one of your idols, uh, Mark Sisson from Primal Kitchen, right? So I've known Mark for oh, okay. like 10 years, but he really is an idol. He really is a hero level person. You know, he's like the godfather of the paleo diet. And I met yeah. him because I'm obsessed with ultimate frisbee, which is so random. And he's been running an ultimate frisbee game for 15 years. And he moved recently to Miami. And my wife and I just had a kid and she's from Miami. So we're there. So sure enough, even though I've run into Mark many, many times over the years, I've never literally sat down with Mark Sisson. Okay. And, you know, had a chat. And, you know, I thought you know, what if, you know, in Miami, everyone's paddleboarding. He loves to paddleboard. I'll invite him to come paddleboarding. Ah, okay. This is going to be like my big chance. And so we, this is um, earlier this year and we go paddleboarding and I have, you know, two paddleboards and I'm not really a great paddleboarder. And one of them's longer than the other, which means it's way faster. 
And also one of the paddles was way better than the other paddles. Okay. And so I said, oh, Mark, you take the, this board and this good okay. paddle. And so we get in the water. And the first thing he said was, and he's so fit. Yeah, he's like. He said, let's just keep this under two hours. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Like, I've never done more than 30 minutes. And it was a snail's yeah. pace. So we set out. And, you know, I thought of this because, you know, the name of your podcast, The Greatest Stories Never Told, you know, First of all, the most important thing about a story isn't the story itself, it's how you tell the story. Number one, I, I, I sat at a dinner recently and everyone went around trying to tell their greatest stories and people had great experiences, but there's only one person who was a great storyteller. Mm. And they told a totally irrelevant, random story about a fifth grade experience that had people laughing for 20 straight minutes. And so all that matters is how you tell the story not the story itself. It's important, but not as important as you think. So I'm at my house. We have a one-month-old. My wife has given me 30 minutes to be gone. And I get on this paddleboard with Mark Sisson. I'm going to be back soon. I didn't even bring water because I didn't, I didn't even, I thought it was going to be a 30-minute paddle. And before I knew it, we're off. I don't have any water. I don't have my phone. You're on the slow board. I'm on the slow board. And he's racing. <laughs> I mean, he's like, he's like jump turned. And he's like, he's doing 40 paddles on a side. Oh, and like an amateur paddleboarder is like, shh, switch the hands. Yeah, that's what I do. Okay, he's Laird Hamilton. He's on the side. <laughs> Dang. Dig the cores engaged, oh, all man. the obliques are like shining in the sun. Yes. And I'm, we haven't even started, and I'm 50 feet behind him. So I'm paddling as hard as I can <laughs> with my poor paddling technique. I finally catch up. We're having conversation while we're paddle, we're bonding, and we get an hour into the paddle. And he's like, All right, I think this is a good place to turn around. I'm like, Oh my gosh, one hour back, and we're against the currents. Mm. We turn around. And I'm thinking, but this is all going to be worth it because at least Mark and I are becoming peers. Yeah, you guys have the shared experience. Even if you didn't talk, you have the shared experience. And so we turn around and I've taken less than 10 strokes and the bottom of my paddle falls out. It just straight falls into the water. And I didn't even have my leash on my board. And I just saw it and I saw it sinking. And I just dove off my board for my bottom of my paddle. As soon as I dove off, I realized my paddleboard, it's not planted. So it pushed the other way oh, shoot. and my paddle was gone. So I'm holding like a half a paddle. My board is gone. And these channels around Miami are actually really wide. There's boat traffic. Yeah. I'm like, Mark, 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 please. And he's like, looks at me with this look like amateur. <laughs> and he like gets my board and I'm like, Swimming, I swim like minutes to get to the side and I get to the side and all I can think about is I'm ruining Mark's paddle experience. Like, and I say, Mark, you know, why don't you go back? You know how to get back to my house. I'll, I'll, I'll leave the board here. I'll come get another time. I'll, I'll figure out a way home. So he's like, all right, and he's off. And I'm here and we're on the side of this canal and I look up. And all I have is like some short Lululemon shorts, a hat, and a white t-shirt that's now soaking wet. And I look up and I'm in like the biggest house I've ever seen. And it looks pretty much finished. Hello, I'm like, hello. And it's what I realized is actually not finished with construction and nobody's home. 
Oh man, so you're just in this random backyard. And I'm in the random backyard and I have this paddleboard. And on the side of the house, there's these gate, these, these fence with these poles. You can't go to the neighbors. Mm. And I go to the front and there's huge gates and huge rock walls with ivy and no one's home and I have no phone and I'm locked into this house. So you got to jump back in the river or what are you doing? So I climb the front wall, which was really high and is intentionally designed to not be climbed. It wasn't an easy wall. And I get over the wall and I slide down and my entire shirt is covered in mud. Oh man. And so and I- Do you think Mark's out there looking for you? Or no, what? he's paddled home. Oh, he went to his house. So I start, I'm like, all right, well, I'm good at solving these situations. Okay. And I start asking, oh, hey, can I use your phone? And no, you can't use my Just phone. Random people people are not friendly. And there's not even that many people in the street because it's like a private, quiet neighborhood. That's oh, the thing about it. Okay. I ask of someone working on a house, hey, could I give you a ride home? And I don't have any money on me, but I'll pay you when you get there. No, man, go away. And I'm soaking wet, <laughs> oh covered God. in mud. So I start jogging home. And by my calculation, that's like four miles. So I'm jogging home. Are you barefoot? I'm yeah, barefoot, covered in mud, no phone. I'm jogging home. Like eight different people have said no. And, the, you know, I've been playing Ultimate Frisbee with Mark in Miami. And there's this guy who runs the game who we'd kind of gone at it a bit. It sounds crazy, but we literally had an argument the day before mm. in Frisbee. And I literally, I thought, you know what? This guy, F him, F this guy. And so I'm running home and I'm like two miles in. I'm like parts. I think I'm like, I can't even, I'm like, I just going to get home. I'm running on Collins Avenue. My feet are getting shredded. I don't even want to attempt to go off the course to a hotel. Cause I'm like, if I just take Collins high enough, I'll yeah. get home. And I'm exhausted. I'm getting dehydrated and I'm covered in mud and a biker literally almost runs me over. And they're like, get out of the way. And I'm like, dude and i look and the biker looks at me and it's the guy from ultimate frisbee oh man and i'm like please save me save me he's like what's happened to you and he calls me a lift and i get I, the lift driver barely won't even pick me up oh wow and i get in i get home and i beat mark back and and mark says oh man was it hard to get back and i, I had like <laughs> no taken my way. shirt off and put on a clean shirt and I was no, man, it's, it's, what took you so long? I, I just did a light walk and I'm actually really glad I walked. It was good for, get the different exercise in. Oh, so man. now maybe Mark will see this and he'll learn what actually happened in that yep. fateful hour while he was paddling back. And we'll I was trying to, to survive. An anonymous yes. package and be like, yeah, yes. go to minute, uh, whatever this is. Oh man, so great. So you've shared some amazing lessons nurture relationships, do something contradictory, you know, look for the third door as Alex Benayan calls it. And I, I know you have more. I want to get them all, man. I know <laughs> that would be another few hours, but um, what are some other things that you're thinking about now? I mean, you're a father now and you're going to have to, you know, pass some things on to your son. What are some more of these life lessons that people can take away from this? I wish that I had learned some of the really applicable survival skills because I think they would give me a much better appreciation of the world. And even though I'm not literally going to have to go survive, if learning how to cook, learning how to farm and learning how to build things 
are skills that everyone would have had 100 years ago. And today, a lot of us are functional idiots. We don't know how to build the house we live in or the things we use. We don't know how to grow any food. And we certainly, we don't, we barely know how to cook it. And so I think when I think of like, what would I like my son to learn? And what are the things I have voraciously tried to learn the last few years to play catch up? Those are three skills. And I think it would give us a much, much better appreciation of the world around us. And then you could have just posted up on Collins, you know, and like, you know, trapped sewer rats or whatever, and, you know, survived out there, right? Exactly. In the streets. Yeah. Cool. No, it makes so much sense though, you know, because like, I mean, especially today with the internet generation, it's like people aren't even leaving their houses, let alone learning how to grow their own food or, you know, build anything. Yeah. I'll take people and we'll go woodworking. Well, I, I love cooking with people because the problem with the restaurant is you sit at this table and you look across from each other and the food gets brought to you. But when you're cooking, I mean, every meal involves mistakes. That's the, what a mm. cooking a meal is and fixes and, you know, and shifts and ideas and creation. And so there's nothing better than having people over cooking together. I mean, any meeting you can make where people are, are, are doing anything together in a kitchen is an absolute blast. And, you know, it's, again, we want to be wary of being armchair activists talking about big concepts without any reality of how recycling works, composting works, farming works. Um, and I found that really learning how to do these things with our hands is a great counterbalance to us, the internet generation that reads about everything. But to counter, you know, those folks who read all those books every year, I think doing is equally as important. Mm. So I would say, of course, reading is great, but if you can go intern or work or just, you know, start any of these things, I can't tell you how much I've learned about, you know, you know, the planet, environment, uh, carbon sequestration, energy, just from composting, starting a garden, and then just the rabbit holes that that will lead me down. So why is it important to get your hands dirty and compost and build things and, and learn to cook? Because we live in an internet world be, where everything we do is on the phone and on the internet. And we think that we're accomplishing a ton and getting a lot done. And all day, all we did was look at a screen and do deals and sit across from each other at tables. And that is no way to live. Mm. That is a part of living. And you're, you and all of us, we, collective we, are missing a major foundational block of life, which is the doing which is the physical work and learning how to actually create, not talking about creating. And what will happen when you learn how to create, you will start realizing much more quickly how the world works. Because if you only talk about building houses and don't know how to build a house, then you won't ever understand the you know construction in the world. If you talk about, you know, and food and go shop, you know, organic at your grocery store. And all you ever see it as is a different, it's in price. You will never understand uh, how food systems work. And, and I just think, you know, some of the most foundational elements of the world are how we live, what we eat, how we create everything, how we manufacture. And I just think anything we can do to get our hands dirty is going to radically educate us. Love that. Yeah, and something else you were telling me about related to long-term thinking, you know, about how people in their 20s are always trying to go for that quick fix, you know, make a million dollars overnight. And 
I love the way this is all starting to tie in about, you know, doing, getting your hands dirty, doing experiential things with other people, building those connections that give you relationship equity. And I think it's really true in business as well, you know, and then also you were uh, talking the other night about giving these things time to mature. Yeah. One of the biggest mistakes people make is they only make short-term goals and the key of any success is short, medium, and long-term goals. Short-term goals being what are we going to do this year, medium-term being in the next three years, and long-term being from four to 10 years. And, you know, whatever your goal is, it's basically impossible to do anything successful in one year. It's basically impossible to make any money in one year. It's impossible to start an organization. It's impossible to do much good, even volunteering or building a nonprofit in one year or building a garden in one year. Good things don't happen in one year. And anyone who wakes up and thinks I'm going to achieve all this success in one year is wrong and they will fail. And the goal of a one-year plan, three-year plan, and 10-year plans and putting them together is so you can plant the seeds in the first year, nurture and help them mature in the second and third year, and then watch your trees and garden metaphorically grow over the next 10 years. People will make goals of, you know, I want to make this much money this year, and you won't be able to do it. But you could probably make 100 times more money or have 100 times more impact with your nonprofit in 10 years. And so if you're uh, goal is to make $100,000 this year, or your goal is to help 100 people this year with your nonprofit, that's going to be really hard. But to help, but to make $10 million in 10 years, or to help 10,000 people in 10 years, which are exponential amounts, mm -hmm. much amounts. larger than just making 100,000 a year or helping 100 people or 1,000 people a year. Well, you have to have a short, a medium, and a long-term plan. Okay. And the biggest mistake people will make is only having a short-term plan with a touch of medium. And mm -hmm. the key is you need to make a plan for all areas of your life, and you need to build equity in those areas. So equity meaning ownership. So whether it's literally equity in investments that you make or in a business you start or equity in relationships that you're nurturing over the long-term. But you need to make a plan for what do I want to do this year what I want to do over the next three years and what I want to do over the next 10 years and literally imagine it as a metaphorical garden, planting the seeds in year one, watering and tending and watching the plants grow in year two and three. And by year five and seven and nine, suddenly you have 20 foot trees. Ah, fascinating. And you know, these investments that we're talking about, people think of Uber and Warby Parker and they think they're like overnight success stories, but those are both 10-year-old plus companies, all yes, right? Yes, And Uber is just exiting now. Yes. And Warby has probably still got a couple more years to go before it becomes a public company or gets acquired or whatever their yes. grand plan is, right? So like, it's a really good point that the real power happens after 10 years. That's when you have like that clout to just make huge impact and start moving. Yeah, I mean, the key is when you show up to your 30s, you need to have built equity through your 20s. Mm. And you need to show up to your 30s with dozens of amazing deep relationships. You need to show up with, you know, ownership in businesses, or maybe it's a, a seat on a board of a nonprofit that you've been nurturing for three or four years. So your 30s, you can be doing great work. 
Or, you know, you can do the same thing in your 30s and have it then be ready for you in your 40s. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, if someone's listening to this and they're in their 30s, and they haven't started, it's not too late, right? I the, mean, yeah, the key is the awareness that anything great is going to take five, seven, 10 plus years. And so you need to start now, but the fruits of your labor will pay off down the road. And that equity could be as simple as like, you know, owning your home or uh, you made the point uh, the other day we were talking that, you know, if we were in our 20s, instead of like renting a room, we had gotten people together and like bought a three bedroom apartment and rented the rooms out, you know, rent free and building equity. Absolutely. And any of, I mean, any of these neighborhoods, uh, you know, like, like Brooklyn or any of the neighborhoods in any of these amazing cities like Chicago or Seattle or Los Angeles. And I don't know anyone basically who was in their 20s and bought real estate then. And mm. that's what you should have you should have done for, for your house instead of, you know, renting and paying money to someone else who was the owner. Yeah. So I called you one day and we were talking some sort of business. I think it was about an angel investment or something like that. And you're like, oh, by the way, and you turn your camera and you're like, I'm getting a massage right now. And I was just blown away because you would ever have this like business talk and you were like, you know, getting one side or getting stretched out. And I know you have a strong meditation practice. And you said something to me that day that I've repeated a lot as a really valuable lesson I've learned from you. And it was about making decisions. Do you remember that? Yeah, all that matters, especially as you start to elevate is making good decisions. And we like to glamorize time spent in office, time spent doing work. But all that really matters is how efficient are you in that time and how good is your decision making. And that goes back to seeing, you know, my, you know, business icons never taking their phones out because they're being totally present. They're not, they're work, look, they're working from their action item list. One of the best secrets, Chris Saka, one of the most legendary venture investors in history told me is, you need to work off of an action item list and you cannot let the world become your action item list. Mm. And that's the world we live in where our action items because become all these things that are marketed to us. All the things that pop up to us on Instagram and Facebook and all the articles we suddenly are turning and reading. We're like a, a, a scatterbrained mouse yeah. looking for the next piece of cheese. And we need to drop in, create our action list of what we want to do and be totally present to do that. And, um, you know, I really, really value um, health and wellness, clarity of mind, um, you know, my physical body being healthy and strong. And I try to spend a lot of time, um, you, know, you know, out in nature, listening, reading, learning, and, you know, getting massages um, and being healthy. Yeah, I think the way you put it to me was that as you grow in business, like when you get to around that 10 year mark, you're doing less of the like day to day work, but you're making bigger decisions. And it's about setting yourself up to make the best decision. And that often means, you know, nourishing your mind and body and getting enough sleep and, you know, doing the things so you're like on point. I mean, the biggest fallacy is people's limited amount of time. This is a lie. When you look at the earnings calls of companies that put out content, Fortnites and Facebooks and et cetera, their biggest competitors are just people's time. And the amount of time that we have in a day, we're not working more than nine to five or nine to six. 
It's just not reality. We're coming back and we're having a whole nother day. We're having time in the morning, we're having time in the evenings, we're having time in the weekends. And the question is in your free time, how are you gonna spend it? Yeah, yeah, I love that. And it's really hard to find a balance these days because you know we are just have a constant onslaught of things we should do almost none of which is beneficial to us. So do you schedule in activities like hiking or working out and things like that? Like, do you make it a, a rigorous plan to put those it's on It's not your rigorous. I don't like scheduling things because I find it becomes too formal, but I have in my head that every day I want to get out into nature and, you know, every day I want to spend time with my family and I want to be, you know, cooking, cooking, you know, cooking or part of dinner. So I, I have a concept in my head of what I want my day to look like. Okay, gotcha. So figure out what your priorities are, the things that are going to get you the biggest results, whether it is in time with your family or on your business or in your health, and then just make sure those are happening every single day would be your advice. Yeah. Awesome. Man, this has been great stuff. What, what else should I be asking you right now? What other things would you say are, are, are key takeaways from all you've done and, and all you've built. I mean, we're sitting on a mountain that you bought in our building and your event in LA that we're going to in a couple of months. I mean, you've got Reed Hoffman speaking there this year. Um, I, I, it'd take me too long to list all the, the amazing people that are appearing on your events these days. Yeah, the things that come to mind are, I try to ask as many questions as possible and talk as little as possible. So this has been the opposite of that, but the best way to build relationships is asking questions that you're really genuinely curious about and people just love to talk. And so that's probably one of the big lessons for me is when I meet all these people, I'm not telling them all the things I'm trying to do. I'm just asking questions. Mm. Um, another one of the most underrated parts of my life that has had an impact is playing backgammon and Every single person uh, over 50, almost everyone in the Middle East, anyone from England, they all play backgammon. It's like the soccer of the Middle East. It's the best game. And maybe it's not everyone, but it's like 95%. Almost all grandparents play backgammon. And it's really been one of the most surprising things where I will bring out, a, I travel with a backgammon board and the amount of people who play backgammon is stunning. And you can just bring out a board and it will allow you to sit with all of these folks and just throw the dice and play backgammon. That's great. It's way easier to connect over backgammon than poker or any other games that I've found. Amazing. All right. So you shared some amazing stories today. If there was just one thing that people take away from your great story that you just shared. What would you say it should be? Everybody underestimates the importance of building their own peer group and overestimates how impactful some quotes from their heroes are going to be hmm. or some inspirational videos. And those are basically all worthless. The most important thing you can do is build a peer group of people who love you and support you and spend time with you and you can co-mentor each other. And a peer group can be four people or it can be 10 people who, you know, you know, intermix and come and go, but it's a group of people that 
can give honest feedback and say, here's how you're messing up. Here's something I really don't like in your attitude. You're a little mm. bit arrogant. Here, I wanted to check in with you on your health because I was a little worried about you. That's okay. Let's keep going. Having your peer group of best friends to motivate you and coach you and help you is has been and is the most important part of my life. Amazing. So how can people keep up with you, Elliot? You're uh, more prominent on Instagram these days. I see you're composting live and yeah, sending just people Instagram. on trips. So that's a great place for yeah, people just to follow Instagram you for sure. Elliot's yeah. a great follow, I'll tell you that. Yeah, and also just message me. I love hearing what people are up to and especially if there's something interesting. Yeah. I love learning about and meeting interesting people. And how can someone learn more about Summit? Is it just Summit? Summit.co. Summit.co. Awesome. Awesome. And there's some of Sarah, my favorite events. We've made so many great connections. You know, something that's on the material in your Summit events that I think says a lot about your philosophy is it says, you know, seek not to network, seek to make friends. Mm. I might be phrasing that a little bit off, but, you know, it says Summit's about making friendships, not about going and meeting a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. And I always think about that when I go to the events, if I'm sitting down at dinner with someone, I'll be like, okay, I, you know, I'm going to connect deeply with this, this person next to me at dinner. And I hope to see them more over the next few days instead of like trying to go connect with a bunch of people, you know, and it just really shows your philosophy is like trickling down in everything you do and helping so many people around the world to build their own peer groups and make their own impact and create their own great stories. So thank you for, uh, for this, Thank lesson and, and all you've built, man. It's, it's been a real honor to uh, be your friend over the last few years and, and watch you grow and uh, cultivate this amazing gift. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for watching. If you want to hear a story that's even wilder than that one, click here. You only have five seconds though. Five, four, three, two, one, go.